This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Blue Apron, Beachbody, and our contributors at Patreon.com. According to legend, the Bell Witch of Tennessee devoted nearly four solid years to taunting the Bell family of Red River. It was never clear exactly what she was, but she allowed them to call her Kate, after a local eccentric woman known as Kate Batts, who at one point she claimed allegiance to. In daylight or candlelight, she was invisible. In darkness, deadly physical, leveling severe attacks on Belle's daughter Betsy and her brother Joel, as well as investigators who came from as far away as England to prove that all of the goings-on were in fact some kind of hoax being perpetrated by the family. Kate's first appearance was in 1817 after the patriarch of the family, John Bell Sr., took a shot at some sort of bizarre creature he saw in one of his cornfields. Some reports say it had the body of a rabbit and the head of a dog. All reports indicate that after he fired upon it, it vanished into thin air. That very night, the Bell family was visited at their cabin by rapping sounds on the cabin walls, fingernails scratching the furniture, and eventually the sound of what seemed like rats gnawing on the family's bedposts. Quiet, raspy voices were heard at first, but only by John Bell Sr. Over time, they developed into clear conversation that could be heard by anyone present. Then the physical assault started. The children's hair would be violently yanked as they slept, their faces slapped with enough force to leave red marks, and their covers pulled completely off their beds in an instant. These events always occurred under the cover of darkness. When a candle would be hastily lit, there would be nothing to see. What was this thing? Why was it there? According to the spirit Kate, she would see John Bell to his grave. But that was not all she was interested in. She was also determined that John's beautiful, intelligent daughter Betsy, whom she tortured frequently, was not to marry her childhood love, Joshua Gardner, or they both would regret it the rest of their lives. No clear reason was ever given for these obsessions of the Bell Witch, but both goals were accomplished. Betsy Bell and Joshua Gardner broke off their relationship and John Bell died in 1821, four years after the Bell Witch's first appearance and just a few days after a final physical assault that left him broken and his spirit defeated. He was poisoned by an unknown substance administered by the Bell Witch herself, who, after mocking him at his funeral in front of all the mourners, vanished for a prophesied seven years before returning once again. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. There are spirits millions of years old, John, that never have been connected with a body, but were created spirits. The Bell Witch to John Bell Jr., as told by Richard Williams Bell in Our Family Trouble. Join us tonight for part two of our show on the Bell Witch of Adams, Tennessee, and the trail of torture and death she left behind her. And we're back with saying, and we're back. <laughs> that we are. We'd like to welcome all of the new listeners to our show. We had our biggest day ever in terms of downloads with part one of this series, and we can't thank you enough for spending part of the creepy season with us. 
October is our favorite month of the year, which is why we roll out four shows in a row and bring them all to you in, in stereo. stereo. Well, I hope Ryan puts a little uh, echo on that uh, stereo part that you said there. Well, since we have all of these new earballs, we'd like to make a simple request. The bulk of our show's growth comes from word of mouth. Scott continues to be dismayed by how many lists of spooky podcasts came out this year that we didn't get on. So please do us, and more specifically him, a favor and tell your friends about us. And if your friends don't know what a podcast is, show them how to find it and subscribe to us. The more people listen to the show, the better the show will get, and the longer we can keep doing it. All right, but to be fair, did you see that top nine spooky podcast list that Lifehacker made? Uh, yes, actually, I did. The one that Jason Chung shared with us on Twitter, because he was like, who makes a top nine list? Exactly. And more <laughs> importantly, who makes a top nine list of spooky podcasts that we're not on? Here's nine shows that aren't Astonishing Legends. Yeah. Well, I guess we're done with this list. If only we could think of one other show and make it a top 10 list. Eh, post it. <laughs> it's like, no, no, I don't have the energy for one more. That's it. We're done here. Just nine. So Ugh. anyway, this is what I mean, folks. We need to get the word out. Or more importantly, I need you to get the word out so Scott can move on from this. I saw one on Reddit, too. Some guy made a list of of a hundred great podcasts. We were nowhere. I mean, it's a great list, but no one even asked about us in the comments. We're like chopped liver. <laughs> well, regarding that, I know bad reviews is good news. Yeah, to me. So, maybe yeah, so. Please, maybe please, so. yes. Uh, that, that's fine by me. I've told you time and time again, arbitrary lists on the internet don't mean anything. I'm looking up publicist on Google right now. We need a publicist. Speaking of publicity, a quick bit of exciting news. We have secured a location for our first ever Los Angeles meetup. That's right. On Saturday, December, Second, we will be hosting a meetup for all of our fans based in Los Angeles and anyone else who can get to Los Angeles or, or more specifically, North Hollywood at a really amazing bar and restaurant called Idol Hour. Oh, yes. This place is an actual Los Angeles historic landmark, and its most prominent feature is a giant two story barrel that was originally built in 1941 as a cafe. After that, it was a flamenco bar, and then it shut down for 30 years before these guys rescued it, restoring it completely, and reopening it as the Idle Hour in early 2015. And I gotta say, I personally love buildings shaped like everyday items. Well, it's super <laughs> cool. And they have a replica of an old bulldog-shaped cafe in the back, oh, actually. That's, right. yes, that's very that's right. cool. Well, the bottom line is you can't miss the barrel. <laughs> this meetup will be different, though, in that both Forrest and I will be there. He could not make it to the one we had in New York. No, he didn't want me there the first time. That's not true. <laughs> it was expensive. <laughs> well, that, my ticket true. was free. No, I, I would love to meet the fans, but that was a Scott-only trip, and I'll be here this time. And here's the other thing that's cool. Movement Watches, our regular sponsor, is actually partnering with us to give away a bunch of free watches to listeners who show up. And there may be some astonishing trivia to answer for those. For example, what color suit did the astonishing disco wizard from the Mothman series have on? Ooh, that's a good one. I, uh, I'd have to go back and listen. <laughs> So mark your calendars for Saturday, December 2nd. We're still sorting out the details, but we'll get ramped up in the late afternoon, most likely. Idle Hour has both delicious food and great drinks. We'll be setting up a Facebook event page for this soon. So if you're on Facebook and can RSVP to help us get an accurate headcount, that would be great. For those of you that are anti-Facebook, please just drop us an email at astonishingcontact at gmail.com to let us know that you'd like to attend and put RSVP in the subject line so Tess can sort them out. Oh, and by the way, if you're in proximity to Adams, Tennessee, the Bell Witch Fall Festival is taking place right now, and there's some great activities going on all month. Visit bellwitchfallfestival.com for more information or the Robertson County Chamber of Commerce. 
Okay, one last bit of business before we get started tonight. Unrelated to all the housekeeping we just did, we wanted to know, is there anybody out there listening that has had an encounter with, hmm, how should I put this? An encounter with really strange and creepy children, say between the ages of 8 and 16, somewhere around there. Maybe it was late at night, maybe it was just one of them, but usually two kids in pairs, and they knocked on your door, or maybe they approached your car window, or stopped you while you were out for a late night walk, and all they wanted was a ride, or maybe they just wanted to come inside your house to use the phone, but they won't say why. Just that they really need to come inside, and they keep insisting you let them in. And something about these kids just ain't right, like they give you the creeps way down inside. But it's not like they look dangerous, or they look like goth kids or juggalos. In fact, they're dressed rather plainly, and there's nothing really distinctive about their appearance. Except for one haunting thing. Something is wrong with their eyes. Well, if this has happened to you, or someone you know, and you'd like to share your story, please email us at your earliest convenience at astonishingcontact at gmail.com. That call for entries there on the children's story, I really like that. Nicely done. Well, thank you. I'm very curious to know if that's actually ever happened to people because we have some amongst our own team who just believe it's all an internet hoax. Yes. So I'm eager to prove them wrong. Well, you, you can't really prove them wrong. I'm just saying that we could find maybe some real life accounts from people that might be pretty believable. I think our audience, while very good for a podcast, is yeah. maybe too small a cross-section of society, though, to find those people because this does seem to be a rare event. Not getting too far ahead because this is not what tonight's show is about. And again, I, I think I maybe had mentioned this before is just from people I know, I'd heard of shadow people stories and strange sightings of things, beings in your own home in the middle of the night that wake you up. Yeah. Whatever that might be and whatever you think that might be. But this is slightly different. It's an encounter, but these are genuinely physical things, we think. But again, yeah, much more rare. So we got a lot more responses than I ever thought we would about shadow people. That's true. Again, I'm intensely curious to see what's going to happen with this if well, anybody we'll responds. Yeah, we'll see what happens. By the way, we are looking for first-hand accounts, not second-hand. It's a very personal thing, and people don't want to be ridiculed, especially in a public venue, but we would keep their identities anonymous. Yes. But if you know somebody that maybe has mentioned that to you, just ask them. It's like, hey, would you be willing to either tell your story or have us tell the story, you know, written out, but send it to us. We still would verify the identity of the person. We would just keep it anonymous. Right, of course. So you right. can't just write in your made-up <laughs> Reddit no-sleep story. That's not what we're looking for here. I hate to burst your bubble, but I can kind of sniff out a Dear David here. Yeah, there, so. yeah. All right. I did want to make one correction. Actually, we're not even sure if it's a correction. We've been seeing the title of the book that we've referenced the most here, M.V. Ingram's book, The Authenticated History of the Bell Witch, listed two different ways in a couple of different places. So we just wanted to indicate if you decide to look for that book, it's The Authenticated History of the Bell Witch or the authenticated history of the famous Bell Witch. And just remember, if you go to pick this book up, it was written in the late 1800s, and there's a fair amount of racist themes in it, so just be prepared for that. There were large sections that I had a very hard time reading. Yeah, beyond any uh, Mark Twain kind of stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, way past that. So let's get back to the story a little bit. There's a couple things I wanted to talk about as we go into this show tonight, and one of them is the origin of the story. We first mentioned that the very first event that John Bell had that was connected to the beginning of the presence of the Bell Witch or Kate the Bell Witch or the Bell Witch Spirit, which a lot of the family took to calling her specifically a spirit and not the word witch. 
just for the record. That's something yeah, exactly. to consider. exactly. Right. As we've mentioned before, witch was an umbrella term for just all kinds of low-end sorcery. Yes. But in this case, they didn't have the terms that they have now. Exactly. So it wasn't thought about or researched as much. And so spirit is just a very general term. Yes, exactly. So the first thing that happened was that he had encountered that weird chimera in the corn as he was headed out to give some orders out for the day. And there was some other task he was at yeah. on the farm that morning when he saw this creature that he shot at and he disappeared. And the descriptions were, as we mentioned just a few minutes ago, the description was the body of a dog with the head of a rabbit, yeah. which of course is pretty freaky. But the thing that's significant about this, and we didn't have a lot of time to go into in part one, because you can't talk about everything. There's a lot of depth to this story, is that the bell witch or the spirit, Kate, frequently took credit for appearing as a rabbit whenever somebody in the family would have a strange encounter with a rabbit that was either running from them, it seemed to be following them, all that sort of thing. And to this day, there's a lot of lore associated with rabbits in the area. One of the things that the Ark dug up about this, which I thought was really fascinating, was the rabbit as a symbol, even going back to pagan times, a circle with three rabbits was an important pagan symbol. Mm -hmm. It goes back a long way. I mean, we're talking every bit of culture, everywhere you can think from Alice in Wonderland to the Matrix. The white rabbit, yeah. Yeah, it's everywhere. So one of the things that's fascinating about that is it goes right back to that whole shape-shifting idea and Kate, the spirit Kate, led everyone to believe that she could be anything she wanted to be, any yeah. kind of form and take any form. And frequently that form was apparently of a rabbit. So this harkens back to Skinwalker, which somehow I managed to mention in every episode. But instead of being a, a giant wolf that's taller than your car, right. it's a little cute bunny rabbit. <laughs> well, didn't Tess tell us that that's a common familiar, as the term being is a, an animal guide or spirit, that the old way of thinking of witchcraft, of the, of the witch with the kettle and all that yeah. kind of business, they have a familiar, which is a, an animal companion or representation, something that does their bidding that can maybe change forms here. I believe that's what she told us, but that is kind of a medieval aspect of witchcraft and uh, maybe lower end sorcery. Yes. And, uh, we had somebody uh, who is a listener give us a little bit of instruction in that, and uh, they wrote in and we might be covering some of those points later on if we have time. So Yes. But in this case, you know, we always think of the black cat. Nowadays, you get the package of Halloween decorations that are cardboard with the movable joints, and there's always a black cat. Yeah. And of course, people have focused on that and unfortunately have gone after them throughout the ages as a symbol of evil, just because of the color, mostly, I think. The Don't cr- do that, by the way. Black oh, kitties are very sweet. No, no, no one's, yes. I used no to have one. Uh, I love black yeah. cats. We had one too, and he was super intelligent, and I hate to keep bringing this up, but I think he got snatched by the owl. Oh, <laughs> you just had to put an owl in this episode, didn't well, you? Well, he survived, but he, oh. he got pretty scratched up. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> no, it, the, the point is that there are other animals, like the crow or the raven is also a familiar yes. uh, to somebody practicing a... Uh, that area of witchcraft. So when you say this rabbit, good luck, rabbit's foot, it's a very common animal to put your kind of attention on this. And in this case, what's going on here? But you mentioned Skinwalker, and we always go to the Wolfman because there's nothing funnier than the Wolfman smoking a pack of Marlboro Reds wearing a checkered shirt. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But we didn't focus on it because they're not as common. But the shapeshifter can also take the form of an eagle or bird of prey. Or an ice bucket. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the Wonder Twins. Sorry. Shape of eagle. Form of ice bucket. Or no, wait, is it form yeah. of ice bucket? Well, whatever. Well, they really contributed to the ALS challenge. Yes. The idea is that it touches a lot of cultures, maybe everyone on earth. And here's what's interesting about that. I want to read this just brief little section from an authenticated history of the famous Bell Witch, where Ingram talks specifically 
about the rabbit. And at the time of the book being published, which was 1890s, this was the attitude there. This is page 25 of 174, according to the Kindle edition I'm looking at. There were many superstitious people in the country who believed the witch was a reality, something supernatural beyond human power or comprehension, which had been clearly demonstrated. This is the way many reasoned about the mystery. Kate arrogantly claimed to be all things, possessing the power to assume any shape, form, or character, that of human, beast, varmint, fowl, or fish, and circumstances went to confirm the assertion. Therefore, people with vivid imaginations were capable of seeing many strange sights and things that could not be readily accounted for, which were credited to the witch. Kate was a great scapegoat. The goblin's favorite form, however, was that of a rabbit, and this much is verified beyond question. The hare ghost took malicious pleasure in hopping out into the road, showing itself to everyone who ever passed through that lane. This same rabbit is there plentifully to this day and can't be exterminated. Very few men know a witch rabbit. Only experts can distinguish one from the ordinary Molly Cottontail. The experts in that section, however, are numerous, and no one to this good day will eat a rabbit that has a black spot on the bottom of its left hind foot. When the spot is found, the foot is carefully cut off and placed in the hip pocket and the body buried on the north side of an old log. Interesting. Yeah. Is that the origin of the lucky rabbit's foot that we said? I don't know. I mean, this is a a fair while back, you know, and I haven't looked that up. So since you're putting me on the spot, I can't really say that it is. Okay. What's relevant here, tying into other stories we've done, it's a human tendency to have these kind of otherworldly scapegoats. Think about the Jersey Devil. Everybody in the area, it's like, oh man, the uh, the TV's on the fritz, it's the Jersey Devil. Yeah. Like with the Bell Witch in the area, as you'll hear later on, the Bell Witch is blamed for everything that goes bad. And it's kind of a joke, but it's also an easy thing to uh, take your frustrations out on and, and blame for your bad troubles. You know, the Research Corps dug up a lot of newspaper articles for this one, and I believe Marissa found this one, which was hilarious. It's from the Clarion Ledger, Jackson, Mississippi, October 27th, 1987. The article is entitled, Thar's Gold and Them There Witches Chills. And this was uh, obviously another Halloween story. The byline is for John Maines, staff writer at the Clarion Ledger. But I just wanted to read this last paragraph with regard to the rabbits that we were just talking about. Many residents of Adams admit they don't believe in the Bell Witch, said Linda Caroland, owner of Caroland's Market, but we do appreciate the business, she added. However, 54-year-old H.C. Sanders, owner of a golf station by the same name, is a believer, saying he met the Bell Witch in the form of a rabbit. About 20 years ago, I ran out of gas across the Red River from the Bell Witch Cave, Sanders said. It was night, and as I walked back toward town, a rabbit came from the woods and followed me. I got scared, so I walked faster. The rabbit followed, Sanders said. He began to run, but the animal also picked up the pace. After about one mile, I sat down on a log and tried to catch my breath, Sanders said. Well, the rabbit hopped up on the other side of the log, looked at me and said, hell of a race we had there, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I do love old tall tales like that. Oh, it's so great. I do remember there was one joke that some people in my family used to tell when I was younger, it was a whole long thing about I was in the grocery store and the guy robbed the store and then I ran away and I tried to get up through the ceiling and and I was just about up and he grabbed my leg and he's pulling my leg so hard just like I'm pulling yours right now. Uh. And you would always, it was yeah. like after a 15-minute story, yeah, you're just right. like, oh, come on. Yeah, that's, well, that's anti-humor, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so that kind of sums up the rabbit thing. But you know what it doesn't sum up? And yeah. what we've been hearing from a lot of listeners about is Jeff, 
which is spelled G-E-F, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's a British thing. And not only that, Jeff is a talking mongoose, otherwise known as the Dolby Spook from the Isle of Man, no less, mm-hmm. which I seem to think the Isle of Man, isn't that like a corporate offshore tax shelter or something? Probably one of those aisles is, but that's where the famous motorcycle race is. Oh, yes. You should know that. Yeah, I yeah. do know about that Few, race. It's very deadly. You know. Yeah, lots of people die. Yeah. But, and it might not be a tax shelter. Don't write me. Don't, I don't know <laughs> if it is or not. If it right. is, you know, good for you. But we just want to mention Jeff briefly. Obviously, this show is not about Jeff, but Jeff was a talking mongoose. And what's really fascinating about him is that the way that he presented himself, this was in Britain in the early 1930s, there is a striking number of parallels between how Jeff was presented to the family that he interacted with and how the Bell Witch presented herself to the Bell family. Jeff was invisible, an invisible spirit. Who claimed he was a mongoose. Who claimed he was a mongoose. Yes. You'll read some, a few accounts, and they don't make that clear. They'll just say, like, oh, Jeff liked to, he liked to eat food out of a bowl. Like, was this an actual mongoose that could talk? Because that's we're talking about a different thing then. Yeah. Talking Hello, animals. Hello, baby. Hello, I'm an island. Hello, <laughs> right now. Yeah. You're doing Michigan J. Frog. <laughs> yes, Michigan J. Frog. To be clear, it's a spirit form that is saying it's a mongoose and talking. So they just come to think it's a mongoose. Now, if it's different, if you come just across like Kate. an account... Kate's Kate. Kate but is Kate. Kate is not Kate at all. Well, and <laughs> Jeff is probably not a mongoose, if yeah. you believe any of this at all. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Kate did not claim to be an animal. You assumed it was a, a well, human. Well, sometimes she was. Well, exactly. She so did they're, sometimes claim to be the rabbit they saw in the field. Okay, the, yes, yeah. that's true. But it wasn't like... It was a rabbit that was then talking to you. Right. And somehow you're tripping on acid or you've got ergot poisoning. Yes. But this is kind of a family pet that's just very intelligent and somewhat powerful. Yeah. And he would do things like help the family out. Like like uh, if they left the stove on, it would turn it off for them. Yeah, and apparently it went with them to the market and ran in the hedges along the side of the road where no one could see it. And yeah. it, it would sing and tell jokes all the way. That's the other thing. It sang and it seemed to know a lot of stuff. So it was one of those things where it was investigated and the investigators concluded that they thought it was a hoax, even though they thought the family was a decent, honest, nice family. They couldn't find out how it was a hoax, but they decided that it was a hoax. It's just something we wanted to mention because everybody said to us, you know what, the Bell Witch sounds exactly like Jeff the Talking Mongoose. It was investigated. This is in July 1935. The editor of The Listener, Richard S. Lambert, who was known as Rex, and his friend, paranormal investigator Harry Price, they went to go check it out. So they were saying, uh, basically the conclusion was like, well, there's spaces in the walls. You could throw the voices. Similar accusations as to the Bell Witch thing. It's like somebody's throwing their voice here. Yeah. If there's a disembodied voice, there's a ventriloquism expert on site. That's pretty much everyone's conclusion. And so just like the Bell story, the 13-year-old daughter of the Irvings, Vori, or Voiri, was also accused of using ventriloquism, perhaps, to fake all this and that the spaces in the walls between the outer shell and the inner paneling acted as a giant sound tube. So it was easy for her to make this happen. But I always look to the interesting quotes because I want to know, what does this thing think it is? And how can that relate to us? Because I always love the thing of, uh, what do you look like? Well, I can't even explain it to you. You'll freak out. Well, according to the Irving family, the quote that Jeff the Mongoose gave them when they asked what exactly he was, was, quote, I am a freak. I have hands and I have feet. And if you saw me, you'd faint. You'd be petrified, mummified, turned into stone or a pillar of salt. And uh, that is cited on the Wikipedia page as coming from Jeff the Talking Mongoose, which appeared in the 14 Times in December of 2010. 
So it's pretty fascinating. That quote sounds very similar to a lot of the stuff that Kate said. The setup is not very common, but again, it's not exclusive. It's not completely original. You'll see uh, cases of imaginary friends even. But these cases that you were saying here, the Bell Witch and, and Jeff, are pretty elaborate and fleshed out, if you will. So remember when you had to say the word prophesied? Prophesied. Or Wait, pro we yeah. looked it up. <laughs> prophesied, prophesied. No, that's um, the verb form, because that's, that's a common grammar mistake, because there's prophecy, which is the noun, and then I think it's a transitive verb to prophesy, to which prophesy. is the, yeah, exactly. That's the, you're doing the act of. Well, the Bell Witch, for whatever reason, prophesied that yeah. she would return in seven years after having gone to John Bell's funeral and mocked John Bell. By singing drinking songs. By singing drinking songs. Yeah. She disappeared, and lo and behold, in 1828, exactly seven years later, according to the three remaining family members at the homestead, which was Lucy Bell, the matriarch, Joel Bell, the son, and who was the one who was attacked most viciously by Kate the Witch the first time around. He was beaten severely one night in much the same way that Betsy was often attacked, but worse. And then Richard Williams Bell, who wrote Our Family Trouble, these three all witnessed her return, but apparently they refused to engage her, and she only stayed for a couple of weeks before disappearing again. Maybe because they weren't giving her as much energy. Yeah, mm. it could be. I guess they all would have testified to the fact that she did, in fact, come back seven years later, just as she had prophesied that she would. Yeah. In addition to this, there was a little thing that we were debating about including or not, but in 1912, there was some kind of strange chimera scene down in Alabama, a dog that had a high-pitched squealing voice that all the locals decided was also the Bell Witch. But <laughs> well, that story seems a little thin to me. Yeah, well... I mean, this whole thing is thin, I guess, frankly. But. Well, it depends on what you choose to go with. So, strange things happening are often attributable to the going legends of the day. So, there you go. Bell Witch, good enough. Yes. She, <laughs> she made the dog, or she is the dog, or something's giving me bad luck. Hey, remember when we were talking about Blue Apron's fifth anniversary this month? Yeah, that was like two days ago, right? Or two weeks ago? I, I don't know. I lost all sense of time. <laughs> well, it's official because Blue Apron is bringing back their top 20 recipes from the last five years as picked by the customers in the Blue Apron community. Well, it really is like a community of home chefs. Now over a million and counting, because not only does Blue Apron make the experience really immersive, but we're all learning to cook better and serve better food as we go along. And since you never get the same recipe within a year, you never get bored with the meals, and you can use the same professional techniques on just about everything else you make. And that's why this limited time offer is so special, just for October, because you can try out all of their greatest hits just by going to blueapron.com astonishing. We've only been using Blue Apron for a couple of years, so we've missed out on some fantastic dishes because over these last five years, they've created over a thousand recipes. And those recipes have you using the freshest and tastiest proteins and produce sourced from over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. And Blue Apron only ships you just the exact amount of each ingredient, so there's no food waste. There's also no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. And those deliveries can go to 99% of the continental U.S., so there really is no excuse not to give Blue Apron a try. Just go check out their most beloved dishes on this week's menu and get $30 off your first meal with free shipping by going to blueapron.com astonishing. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com astonishing. Blue Apron. A better way to cook. 
Hi, I'm Scott Philbrook. And I'm Forrest Burgess. And whenever we're not researching and recording Astonishing Legends, we're reading tweets from one of our number one fans. Storming Teacup. Happy birthday, Trish. We don't know what we'd do without you. Now, let's get back to the show. Continuing along the lines of some of the story stuff that we didn't get to include in part one, but we did want to impart before the series was over, we wanted to discuss a little bit more about Kate Bats, because there's a lot more to Kate Bats than what we've been able to share so far. There are all kinds of varying descriptions of her, and, and you know that we already told you the one about her being this eccentric woman who burst into the church and sat on somebody who was in the process of being saved and who used malaprops all the time and maybe might have been ostracized just because she was a strong, outgoing woman who had to manage her family's business because her husband was an invalid. Right. There's that, but then there's another story that Kate Batts and John Bell used to be married. Yeah. And that something had gone wrong with the relationship, and in this story, he locked her in a basement until she died. Oof. So that's one story. There's another story that indicated that they had had a relationship of some kind in North Carolina before he fled North Carolina, Mm -hmm. and something went wrong, and she came to the Tennessee area where he had moved his family to seeking vengeance. And the last story, which we have two interviews in the show tonight, and we actually hadn't heard this story until we did one of the interviews, which you're going to be hearing in a little bit, with a local park ranger from the area named David Britton. David and I talked for a good 45 minutes, 50 minutes, and we wound up cutting that interview down. And this story is one of the pieces that we actually had to cut from it, but our patrons are going to be able to listen to it at the $5 and above level. We're posting both of the full versions of the interviews from tonight there. They were cut down just a little bit to fit in the show tonight. Not too much, so don't fret. But this story that he told us about Kate Batts, it was the first time we'd heard it. In a nutshell, Forrest, you had a better grip on this. What was this final story on Kate? It was relating to a couple of murderers, right? Yes. Well, uh, Ranger Britton, David Britton, has a theory, but he said, you know, it's nothing totally confirmed. He can't prove it. But his theory is that Kate Batts was connected to the Harp Brothers, and that's H-A-R-P-E, and... What they're famous for is being the first known serial killers in the American colonies, in the American frontier, and committing horrible atrocities, having killed and admitted 39 people, but maybe as many as 50. And their names were Makaija, I think, or Makaya, Big Harp, that's in in quotes, so he was known as Big Harp, and then uh, he was born as Joshua Harper sometime around the mid-1700s there, and died like 1799. And then there was Wiley Little Harp, so he was known as Little, and he was born as William Harper probably before uh, 1750, 1770, and he died in 1804. So these guys were really, really nasty. Yeah, and if you look them up, even though they were Harpers, they spelled their name H-A-R-P-E. And like I said, serial killers, murderers, highwaymen, river pirates, rapists, they destroyed property, they burned people's houses down. It's just, it was that kind of lawlessness. It was hard to catch people. The connection here is that they would kidnap women and have them in tow, two or three. I think the story, one story I read was two women at least uh, for each of the brothers. There was three possibly that were, uh, as uh, David Britton says, had kind of a serious uh, Stockholm syndrome going on. But one of them may have been Kate Batts, according to David Britton. And that supposedly one of these women in the traditional story of the Hart brothers had a beautiful daughter. They moved away, or maybe even one of the Hart brothers tried to get away and start a new life. But people in town knew, and the daughter was ostracized because her dad was a suspected serial killer. And 
this may have been Kate Bass because she was also reported to have had a beautiful daughter who was also ostracized, possibly because she had a mom who was very strong-willed and a, and a real character, and then the father who was kind of uh, laid up. And so possibly that may have been one of the Hart brothers. The infirm father? Yeah. So the way David explained it is that this is possibly an interesting connection in that uh, you move to another town. No one really knows a whole lot of information. We ran into that before with the Count of St. Germain. You could just pop up in another place, call yourself something else. And people were like, well, okay, you're that, until stories start filtering in. Same thing with Henry Plummer. So Kate may have had some connection to that, as well as her attractive daughter, because the stories do line up a little bit. Well, there you go. So as you can see, there's a whole lot of possibilities here. It's one of the things we said at the very top of part one. There's a lot of stories that are told about this, and we're coming at them from all angles, not only from the stories associated with the publications that share the series of events, but also we're getting information from locals, and you're going to hear more from Park Ranger David Britton in a little bit. So we should talk a little bit about the Bell Witch Cave, which we have mentioned briefly, but we haven't gone into a lot of detail on yet. And this is a fascinating part of this legend. It's kind of like it's taken on a life of its own. And there's a lot of people that will say, you know what, it's not connected to the Bell Witch. It happened to be on the property. That's one thing of the some of the parcels that John Bell originally had. And it's in a bluff down by the Red River that I believe is a 300-foot cliff. And way up high is this cave that sounds inaccessible, but in fact, you can get to it, and it's large enough that, quoting an authenticated history of the Bell Witch, parties could go there and have lunch or something. And it has two big rooms, one in the front and then another one further back into the room. And the thing about this cave is it was on Bell's property, and for whatever reason, later it became associated with the Bell Witch. At the time, the family didn't really associate it with her, although they did have events take place there that she was involved in, but they had events take place that she was involved in all over their land. So they didn't necessarily think, oh, it's the Bell Witch Cave, because it would also be the Bell Witch River, the Bell Witch Cornfield, the Bell Witch... She was everywhere. (laughs) She was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. But essentially, it's a karst, which is a topographical feature of like limestone or gypsum being washed away. We talk about Hoska Castle. Yes. uh, Possibly a similar thing of a chasm opening up, and that's sometimes how caves are formed. But of course, it's part of the lore. Much like I mentioned when I referenced Beowulf, Grendel's mother lives in a cave. Yeah. Everything evil and spooky lives in a cave, and there's bones and all kinds of stuff at the front of it. So not this one, but that's always the legend. Well, this cave does have some grave sites in it from Native Americans. It does, because uh, that was also a a non-spooky but just, you know, a ritual feature is that you want your loved ones, your dead, protected so you would bury them inside a cave. That's why some of the greatest archaeological digs are in natural features like that because people lived in them. They buried their dead. They were kind of sacred. And as far as I believe paganism goes, any feature of the land, something unusual, it could be a beautiful tree, a, a mountain, something like that, is taken with reverence. So here's a feature of the land, and and so during those times, it it offers a lot of significance for the area. But as far as the witch story goes, not totally tied in. Some people, of course, thought that's where the witch came from. It's a portal of something, and she sprung from it. Well, what's fascinating about this, there's actually two stories that took place very close to the cave, and these were both ones that we felt like we needed to hand over to Ryan, because their first story we're going to share is regarding to the fishing area down on the Red River at the base of the cave because the kids would go there and go fishing fairly frequently. And this is one of those instances where Kate the Bell Witch or Kate the Spirit was actually a little bit more of a trickster. A playful trickster. A playful trickster, which 
I don't know how, especially if you're one of the kids, like Joel, who has been savagely beaten in your yeah. bedroom at, at night back yeah. at the house. I don't know if you want to go out and joke around with this thing while you're fishing on the river. You I guess know? you have no choice. It's yeah. going to joke around with you whether you like it or not, and you're minding your own business. Yeah. Take a listen to this little fishing story. The witch was not always what she seemed. Kate was apparently responsible for cruel and evil deeds, but sometimes she was nothing more than a prankster. Dr. Charles Bailey Bell, son of Dr. J.T. Bell, grandson of John Bell Jr., and great-grandson of John Bell Sr., the patriarch, shared a story in his book, The Bell Witch, A Mysterious Spirit. This story will leave you perplexed. The tales in the book were passed down orally through the family, according to Charles Bailey, and they can be taken as truth with regard to what the family endured. Just below the Bell Witch Cave, there was a section of the Red River that Betsy and the boys of the Bell family liked to fish. Apparently, it was a good spot, and they frequently did well there, bringing home plenty to eat for everyone. But it wasn't always this way. Sometimes they would go and not catch a thing. Well, this is fishing. That's completely ordinary, right? Well, it would be, except that even on these bad fishing days, the corks they used for bobs would jerk madly about in the water their poles bending as though there was a fish on every line. They would jump up and pull the line in only to find that not a single fish was there. This would go on for a while until finally they'd give up, only to be ridiculed by the disembodied voice of Kate the Witch laughing hysterically behind them. Boy, you know what? If you're not catching any fish all day, that is the last thing you want to hear from a smart aleck (laughs) (laughs) disembodied spirit like, You know, yeah. got your bobber moving. I'm yeah. millions of years old, and this is all I have to do today. <laughs> Don't you have anything better to do? You have access to the whole universe. You're Q, and you're messing with us. That's yeah. the idea. So, Well, that's what Q did. Yeah, but he was trying to make a point, wasn't he? Or he was just, I mean, they didn't uh, know they, what the They went was. on trial for the crimes of humanity. But if you're just, look, fishing. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah, just some true. kids fishing, you would think that this thing had... Uh, better things to do. But my point is if, again, if you're going to go down this road of belief, there is some interactive energy here happening. And so the more it interacts with you, the more it gets you frustrated. And uh, It seems to take power in that. Yeah, because going by the logic of belief here is that as this thing starts off and it's this little screechy, scratchy thing on the outside of the, uh, the house and on the door, some tapping and rapping on the windows, And then it moves inside and it gets stronger and it gets more defined and it grows. And then it it fully forms into an entity down this road of belief. (laughs) And here now it's like fully just following you around and it can travel overseas and through the ethers and it knows everything. And what happens if you don't give it any energy? Maybe it gets weaker and finally it says, all right, you know what? I guess you've had enough of me after seven, <laughs> the seven-year return. You're not that happy to see me. I'll be shuffling off to Buffalo. So here, it's kind of a harmless prank and you're goofing around. It's kind of jerky thing to do, literally, but not harmful. But Kate was a jerk. That's the you thing know, about Kate. She exactly. was not a nice person. She was ra- horribly racist. Yeah, yeah. She played pranks on these kids. She even beat them up. Yeah, she was horrible in a lot of ways. But that's what's so baffling about the idea of Kate as a character is that it's horrible in a lot of ways, sometimes helpful, sometimes just playful. There's an interesting theory in that these horrible 
personality attributes, the racism, the pettiness, the meddling. It's like, well, you, you I don't approve of the, you know, this guy you're going to get married to. I'm going to butt in here, nose my way in here. The horrible insults, all these things go to contributing to an idea of a witch in that very, very general sense, because it's a harpy. It's that classical kind of being that's like a shrill and just awful being. And there's some theories about that contributing to the overall idea, the very general sense that it's a witch. Because what do some insensitive people say when they meet a, a woman they don't really like? Is it, God, what a witch. Yeah. The thing about Kate, the baffling part, is that sometimes she was helpful. Which brings us to our next story. And this one's pretty fascinating. This one takes place in the Bell Witch Cave, which is just above the spot in the river where they were fishing in our last tale. The Bell family never knew what the Bell Witch would do next. She seemed to have a different relationship with the kids than the adults, and in some cases, interactions with them that the adults in the family wouldn't have necessarily even been aware of. In Dr. Charles Bailey Bell's book, The Bell Witch, A Mysterious Spirit, this story of the cave, told from Betsy Bell's point of view, is relayed to the reader. It can be found on page 89 of the print edition of the Bell Witch Anthology. On the river near the north boundary of the farm is a cave in the bluff which is about 300 feet high and almost perpendicular. There is sufficient room at the front of the cave for parties to have lunches. Below the cave, the river makes a good fishing place and we often fish there. The cave became famous as the Bell Witch Cave. None of us ever knew of the cave being occupied by the spirit, but on our pleasure trips, we always heard its voice on the river or in the cave. There were beautiful stalactites in the cave. We often took candles and went back quite a ways to a big room some 30 feet high with a kind of upstairs to it. After passing through this, the passage became small. One time when we were exploring the cave, one of the boys in the crowd came to a place where he had to get down on his knees and crawl. Suddenly, he went into a kind of quicksand deposit and soon became so jammed in he could not get out. His candle was out and no one could get to him. Suddenly, the big room and all parts of the cave were lit up as if from a big lamp. A voice called out, I'll get you out. The boy's legs were seized as if by strong hands and he was drawn out with a face full of mud and nearly suffocated. We all agreed not to tell our parents of this nearly fatal accident, but that night when the spirit arrived at the usual neighborhood gathering at our home, it asked the parents of the boy if they had gotten the mud out of the boy's ears then it told them of his predicament in the cave and advised them to put a halter on him next time so his companions could pull him out if he got stuck again. Yeah, that cave story, I kind of love that one. It's super fascinating to me. It's such an interesting, detailed story about something that happened. We'll talk a little bit later about the theories here on this book, on M.V. Ingram, the possibilities of hoaxing and all that. Whenever a story has this much color and detail and richness, it's just like, I enjoy it so much. Of course, it's possible to fictionalize anything, right, and maybe right. somebody made this up out of whole cloth, but especially in light of what we were just saying about Kate, kind of being an awful creature most yeah. of the time. Yeah. But in this case, she's rescuing a little boy who probably would have died. Yes, but not without a reprimand. Again, it's visiting the family later. It's like, you get all the mud out of his ears? Yeah. Let's put a halter in that kid. You know? it's yeah. <laughs> like, you know, stuff you couldn't get away with saying now without being shamed for right. you know, criticizing somebody's child-rearing practices. But she didn't have to do this, if you take the story to be true. She didn't want to see at least kids killed. Now, slapping, poking, pinching, pulling their hair, possibly poking them with pins, sure, that's on the table, but... 
when it came down to actually having the power and not using it to at least save a life, that seemed to happen because I don't think there was any other deaths around, at least as far as what she considered innocence. Now, John Bell, different story. Yeah, that's true. There's somebody where uh, it's not the sense of morality that we think of. And again, it's very capricious. It's like, I like you, I don't like you. And I'm going to help you. I'm not going to help you. And and you, I'm just going to annoy yeah. constantly every night, all night, so you don't get much sleep. But regarding folklore, generally being, it's a bunch of tales handed down through the ages, through oral tradition. Now, how much of that is true? How much of Homer's stories are true? Ancient blind poet who just told these stories orally. Like, we don't know. But you know what? The stories are fantastic, so we're going to go with that. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to do here. That's a wise policy. Well, because just as folklore anyway. Yeah, yes. it's, it's highly entertaining. Well, one of the things that is interesting, too, about the roots of the Bell Witch and the origin story for her and all this folklore around her, you need to take a look at what's happening in that time and place. Religion was a major factor here. Oh, and yeah. And obviously it's a major factor everywhere throughout human history in different forms. As early on, we looked at, certainly at Greyfriars. Yes. And the Covenanters' prison, and we're talking about bloodshed on a massive scale. So all of Europe was inflamed in this religious debate, usually between Catholics and Protestants, going all the way up to uh, who's going to be on the throne. Yeah. To what is the man and woman in the street going to believe? Yeah. It's not only going full force in Europe, but that, of course, has traveled across the pond into the uh, American colonies and into the American frontier. Well, and at this particular location, there were some pioneering ministers involved with both Methodism as well as baptism. And at the time, both of those religions were different from how they are today and how they're perceived today. One of the fascinating things about Methodism, which I did not know until we got into this, was that John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, believed in witchcraft and the supernatural. And one might ask why. And the reason is the house that he grew up in, the old rectory at Epworth in England, was haunted. The rectory, I guess, apparently had burned down in a fire and was rebuilt in 1709, and the paranormal events that the Wesley family experienced happened in 1716, when John Wesley was living there with his mom and dad and 18 siblings. Oh, dear. Yeah. And I guess one of them, her bed floated right up in the air while she was in it, and he saw all manner of strange things there. So as I mentioned before, my brother-in-law is, uh, who has a degree in theology, I wanted to ask him a little bit about this. He's particularly experienced with Methodism. He's an ordained Methodist minister. And he turned me on to a website and blog, I guess, called Ministry Matters. And there was an article there by a man named Shane Rayner called Ghosts, Supernaturalism, and the Wesley Poltergeist. Because I thought this was really interesting. I had no idea about this history of the Epworth Rectory and John Wesley. And Shane's article on it is really fascinating. There's a lot of great stuff in it. We're going to have a link to it in our show notes. And it talks a lot about the exact experience that Wesley had at the rectory. Here's a quote from Shane's article. The spirit, referred to as old Jeffrey by the Wesleys, was active for about eight weeks during December 1716 and January 1717, and most members of the family wrote at some point about their experiences with the entity. Two servants were the first to hear Jeffrey's groanings and knockings in the dining room. Then the Wesley children began hearing those noises as well as sounds of footsteps, rattling chains, horns being blown, and wood being sawed. There were also accounts of moving furniture, including a levitating bed that was occupied at the time by John's older sister, Nancy. 
Before long, everyone in the house except John's father, Samuel, was experiencing the phenomena. Reverend Wesley even rebuked the family and the servants for perpetuating such tales. But then, Samuel Wesley began having his own encounters with old Jeffrey. One night, after being awakened by knocking, Reverend Wesley, after trying to figure out where the noises were coming from, issued the spirit a challenge. Quote, Thou deaf and dumb devil, he shouted, why dost thou frighten these children? Come to me, come to my study, I am a man. End quote. Ah. Old Jeffrey responded that evening with knocking and the following evening by slamming the door of Samuel's study forcefully, just as the reverend was opening it. Samuel also claimed to feel someone pressing on his chest later while he was lying in bed. This article goes on. There's a lot of really fascinating details in it. I'll point you to our show notes to get to it. But one of the best quotes from it is something that Shane included, apparently from John Wesley's journal that was written in uh, 1768 later. And this is John Wesley's own words. They well know, whether Christians know it or not, that the giving up of witchcraft is in effect giving up the Bible. With my latest breath, I will bear testimony against giving up to infidels one great proof of the invisible world. I mean that of witchcraft and apparitions confirmed by the testimony of all ages. So I just thought that was super fascinating. Oh, yeah. We go to this time where, where Methodism is taking hold in the United States as well as baptism in the early days of the colonies and in Tennessee. And the leader of the Methodist movement is obviously given over to believing in this sort of stuff. And I think it's admirable. Frankly, I think it's really fascinating and interesting because it is all connected, in my opinion, to a grander philosophy. Well, yeah, you know what's going on there, because belief, as I always say, is very personal. And I'm talking about religious belief, but of course that is, but belief in the supernatural, let's say, which is another step beyond actual religious belief. People go to church, and nowadays, even with the you know more sophisticated, you could say, belief systems, or certainly more modern, a lot of people go to church, but they don't really believe in the paranormal. They're not willing to make that leap. And so I've heard plenty of stories ghost stories, and even um, people who are paranormal uh, investigators who go to church regularly. And I believe I heard a story by two women who call themselves the Haunted Housewives, and they're a, a paranormal investigation team of two ladies. At least one of them goes to church very faithfully, very regularly, but she gets a lot of flack at church from the other members who or, or chastise her for that. It's like, why are you dabbling in that? That's weird, and it's a bunch of bunk, and you shouldn't be doing that. And she says, well, you know, what about the Holy Spirit? It's like, well, that's different, not believing in spirits. So they're only willing to go so far in their beliefs like that. And the reason I believe that John Wesley believed in that, because he saw it firsthand. And I connected to this quote from Will Rogers that I really love. It's, people's minds are changed through observation and not through argument. Meaning, I can sit here and try and explain to you about ghosts, and you're not going to believe it, but you get one that rattles your bed and uh, pulls the sheets off and sits on your chest, and you're wide awake, you're probably going to believe that a lot more than me trying to uh, tell you my story about it. So again, tying into modern church beliefs, a lot of these stories, when you explain that to your pastor, a lot of people say that they don't come out and investigate. They don't want to have anything to do with that. Not naming any denominations, but that's why a lot of people who aren't Catholic will go to a Catholic priest if they have uh, strange things happening, because that's a denomination that does take that seriously. So it's interesting. It's just levels of uh, how far do you want to believe and what do you want to believe in. 
Along those lines, before we change subjects, I did want to mention that Shane, where I took that quote from and that article from, has his own podcast called News and Religion. It's been down since March. They have about 22 episodes posted, but he did tell me on Twitter just the other day that they're retooling and hoping to relaunch it soon. And I think it's really fascinating. It's got a lot of cool topics that are interesting, and and some of them are even connected to the kinds of things we talk about and how that intersects with Methodism, which I personally think is very fascinating. And just to give you a a taste of Shane's disposition on it all, one of his most recent tweets I love, October 6th, someone just asked me, quote, don't Methodists believe in spiritual warfare? I answered, this Methodist does. So (laughs) you got a new subscriber, Shane. So I I can't wait till you get some new shows out. Looking forward to hearing those. And uh, thanks for letting us quote your article. Well, again, it's very personal. So moving on, part of the reasons that we wanted to talk a little bit about the religious background of the area and how it connects to the Bell Witch was because we wanted to set up this interview with park ranger David Britton, who we mentioned earlier, who's been a friend of the show for a little while now. He actually provided pictures for us of the Kelly Hopkinsville site. So anybody that went to our website for that episode would have seen pictures that he submitted. And then he sent a whole bunch more pictures for this series because those two places are only 40 miles apart. The photos he took are now currently featured for part one, and I'll carry those over to part two. So you'll get to see all those. And it's just a great sampling of the area. So the full interview, which is 15 or 20 minutes longer, you will be able to hear on Patreon, if you're a patron of the show at the $5 and above level, we'll be posting that interview there. But without further ado, let's change gears for a minute and go to my interview with Park Ranger Britton. My name's David Britton. I'm a Tennessee State Park Ranger. I'm stationed at Port Royal State Historic Park, which is just down the road from Adams, Tennessee, and also Dunbar Cave State Park in Clawsville, which is about 15 miles further west been doing the park thing for about 12 years now, but I've grown up in and around Port Royal in Adams, Tennessee. The house I live in is my grandparents' place in Port Royal, and for those who don't know, Port Royal was the nearest town to the Bells during the saga of the Bell Witch. It's no longer there. There's just a park, and so I've grown up with the story of the Bell Witch my entire life. You know, I remember being in probably third or fourth grade and becoming kind of obsessed with it and checking out books at the library, namely Ingram's book or Charles Bailey Bell's book. But then uh, over the years of just probably due to my mother's influence, being uh, very interested in the the weird and unexplained along the way. That's our people. That's our kind of people right there. (laughs) (laughs) So my girlfriend, yeah, her and I have been dating about a year now. And that's one of the things we connected over was the weird and unexplained and the strange. She actually introduced me to the Kelly Hopkinsville case. I had never actually heard of it prior to meeting her. And then she's the one who introduced me to you guys and your podcast. Well, please tell her thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I I came into it with, uh, I guess, the Mothman episodes. Okay. And I've been listening ever since. So. That's great. Being a park ranger, I would say this place it gets heavily into the, my take on the Bell Witch as well. There is like a primevalness to the woods, to nature. And when you understand that when you're in the middle of the woods, when you're on in a place where there's not another soul for at least hundreds of yards, in some cases miles, that you're in the most beautiful place in the world at that moment, but it's also a place that could turn around and kill you. Yeah. And sometimes I don't really know how to put words to what it is, but I do know that there's a rumbling of energy, so to speak, that kind of like happens 
in the woods and in the water and in the rocks, everything that are, that's around you. And so I don't discount anything, not at all. And not anymore. So <laughs> how do you feel about what you grew up hearing and the bell witch in general? Well, I think you guys actually hit the nail on the head with it uh, in your first episode. Folklore is a huge component of the story. In fact, the story really wouldn't be anything without folklore. That's how characters, or if you want to even say entities, or stories, you know, they maintain their power by being told, by being passed down generation by generation around campfires, around candlelight when the lights go off in your house. And that's how these things are, are, are happening or continue to be passed down. And for myself growing up around it, I heard all the stories that are um, picked right out of Ingram's book. But then you also hear anything that is remotely spooky Yeah, sometimes gets credited to the Bell Witch. Sure. A guy came to install a satellite dish at my house. And this guy had every possible problem, I guess, that a satellite installer could have. <laughs> while doing it. And he's, and, it's the Bell Witch. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. He was sweating bullets and just, I mean, he was there till like nine o'clock at night and he's supposed to have been gone at five. And he says, I just know this is the bell witch that's doing this. Yeah. And I'm like, well, okay. (laughs) But uh, so that's kind of what you grow up around, especially when you get closer to the town of Adams. Sure. The more that you are in, in that area, you see spooky things, unexplained things, calamities, failures, you know, tragedies getting assigned to the work of the Bell Witch. I've had people who would bring back stuff they took from the Red River, from the park, or even the surrounding area, claiming that all this misfortune had been following them since they've taken it. You know, and I know the Bell Witch Cave and Adams kind of claim some of the same things. And I guess a lot of other haunted places out there probably do. But people take something, they start experiencing tragedy. Oh, it must be the fault of this item. So they bring it back. I think also a lot of your traditional kind of urban legend ghost stories were also kind of manipulated to accommodate the Bell Witch. So your your stories of like uh, Bloody Mary, you know, when I was a kid, it was, you got to go in the bathroom and spin around three times and say, I hate the Bell Witch, I hate the Bell Witch. Say, I hate the Bell Witch, she's going to scratch your face or something like that. Or if you say, I love the Bell Witch, you'll get a pillowcase full of candy. So all kinds of variations of, of those urban legends get you know manipulated and turned into a bell witch story. When these people brought back the artifacts they took that they felt like had brought them bad luck, you immediately arrested them, right? <laughs> well, more often than not, it's just a rock. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, I hate to tell some of the people that like we used to have like a, a collection of rocks in the office. You know? <laughs> people would bring these things back uh, and occasionally go outside and just kind of dump them off, but. Right, so nothing uh, bad happened at the office after they brought him back. Not due to the rocks, anyway. So. Right. What's, like, the craziest artifact return story you ever heard? Mm. Now, this is something that would be a legal issue. I have heard stories of people that were pot hunting, which is kind of the vernacular term for digging Native American graves. Okay. And the area between Port Royal and Adams is full of Mississippian-era stonebox mortuaries and You'll hear stories of that occasionally, of somebody pulling something out of a grave in an undisclosed location and, and then wanting to take it back. And in those cases, I've never actually had anybody bring something back to me because, you know, according to federal law, that's actually a felony. So right. I've had some of them would bring back, you know, rocks or um, 
pieces of glass or something they pulled out of the ground. But what they recounted to you sounded like a bad country song as far as all the, the loss they'd encountered over the next <laughs> they or something. lost know? their truck and their house and the... Yeah. Nothing so much beyond that, though. Right, right. It seems to me, based on our correspondence, that you've done a fair amount of research on the story yourself. Yes, sir, yeah. So what's your personal position on the idea of the Bell Witch and the origins of the story, taking into account all the folklore that surrounds it? So my position with the Bell Witch, I came to via a book on the Salem Witch Trials. And that book is called Salem Possessed. That was published in 1974 by Paul Boyer and Stephen Nissenbaum. And their thesis is that while we're not going to argue for the nature of these disturbances or the possessions or whatever we want to call it, we want to look at this particular incident of where we have one woman who is supposedly a a witch. She uh, is uh, afflicted by the same situation that that the uh, young women in some manner accused of of having in Salem Village, but this woman goes to a small town in Connecticut, and in her town, revival breaks out. And so these two historians say, well, here we have the exact same scenario, but this town interpreted it in such a way that revival happened. This town interpreted it in such a way that they started hanging people. Right. So the difference must be What's going on in the community that caused them to interpret this event in the way that they did? Okay. And so they further argue, and they argue this actually is not so much as an argument, just as a footnote. One of them states that this has some striking similarities to what was going on in Kentucky 100 years later during the Great Revival. And for those who don't know there, the Great Revival begins in roughly 1799, begins at Cane Ridge, Kentucky, lasts, according to most historians, to 1805. And it's a period of really intense uh, revival movement. Multiple Christian faiths are involved in this, uh, but it's mostly the Methodists. Methodist camp meetings come out of this. The reason they make this comparison is because people who were involved in these Methodist revival meetings if they were overcome by the Holy Spirit, as they would put it, they would oftentimes experience manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And those manifestations mimic almost verbatim those things that a lot of the accused in the Salem witch trials were experiencing. The feeling of being pinched and slapped, convulsing, falling on the ground, barking like dogs, speaking in tongues, and on and on and on and on. They make that comparison there. And that sent me down this path with the Bell Witch. So with the Bell Witch, we have to take into consideration that this community of Robertson County, and really most of Tennessee, but Robertson County is largely populated by people of Scots-Irish and English descent, but especially Scots-Irish, who are ultimately Highland Scott descent. And so even though that this is a post-Enlightenment world, we're still, as you guys pointed out in episode one, we are still the frontier. Now, 1817, that's why it's 21 years after Tennessee becomes a state, become a state in 1796. So the frontier line has moved out, and we're not a frontier in the sense that we're without order and law and governance, but you are pretty much still living in the middle of nowhere. These people of this descent largely understand that if something goes bump in the night, it's not because the water pipes are clinging 
like we would think today. It's not because a bird landed on your roof. It's not because the wind's blowing a little too hard. It's because there's a ghost. If somebody gets sick, if milk goes sour while churning, if a cow dies, if somebody has a horrible accident, more than likely, their first inclination is to go towards the supernatural as the explanation for these things. And people of a Scottish background are more than likely going to understand this to be the product of bewitching. And so as you guys very adequately pointed out in the first episode, witchcraft here in this story is nothing like what we understand witchcraft today. In fact, this is not really witchcraft. They just referred to this process of somebody placing a curse or feeling the effects of someone's power over you as being bewitched. And that's something that goes back for hundreds of years prior to 1817. I think that we see that start to manifest here in Robertson County beginning in 1817. So the records indicate that John Bell was not the affluent individual that a lot of the stories like to make him out to be. He was probably kind of middle of the road guy. The records indicate fairly well that he was not poor, but he was not necessarily filthy rich either. Uh, he didn't own thousands of acres. He owned a few hundred acres, which is fairly normal for a farmer. I remember that when we were doing the research, I had seen a couple of figures. And one of the things we talked about in part one was how he had a thousand acres. But I did read in another source that he only had 320. Correct. The thousand acres more than likely is assigned somewhere in the late 19th century with Ingram. Because I think, you know, a lot of the stories of Bell at that time are painted in such a way to make them look exceptionally poster child of all things good. Right. And prosperous. So it kind of makes the story seem that much more worse. Sure. But yeah, as far as the actual land ownership, he purchased half of what was called a preemption grant. And then he got a a land occupancy grant a little later on. Okay. So do you have a better sense for how much land he actually had? The first purchase was 320, and then he purchased an additional 150. Okay. So he only had, uh, no, I did 470. Right. 470, correct. Yeah, all right. Let me. <laughs> he had 470 acres. See, I'm I'm so good at math. <laughs> you know, that's a lot of acreage for us today. Sure. But at that time, not so much. I mean, you figure your North Carolina when they still had jurisdiction over ten, what's now Tennessee, they're paying soldiers with a square mile, 640 acres, for three years of service. Okay. So owning a lot of land is not necessarily a an indicator of wealth. That's interesting. So what other things, in terms of the reality of who John Bell Sr. was, what other things have you heard about his personality and behavior that might not jibe with the authenticated history of the Bell Witch? Sure. There's a few different things. What sticks out to me the most, and this actually, I think, plays into part of his perception by the community at that time, is the Red River Baptist Church Minutes. So the story will reference frequently disagreement between he and Kate Batts. And actually, there was a disagreement in the church minutes between him and Jeremiah Batts over usury, which is, you know, charging excessive interest. Then also, we have to remember that the, the church at that time, even though there was a county chancery court and a circuit court, the church oftentimes handled smaller disputes, if you were a member of that church. And so that was what was happening there. But there is a a situation, I believe it is in 1816. So I think it's the year before the Bell Witch appears. And 
the church which John is part of, the Red River Baptist Church, which it was founded in 1791 in Port Royal and moved to Adams in 1811. And that was the church that they were part of, or he was part of. The church was uh, sitting now for communion, and part of their process of going through communion was ensuring that the entire body, the congregation, was in fellowship with each other, making sure there's not any uh, disagreements, any grievances between members. And so everybody seems to say no, but then a guy named Josiah Fort stands up and says, yes, I have a grievance with John Bell. And it alludes that it's a pretty heated, intense disagreement. John Bell says that he doesn't know what he's talking about. So it gets everybody in uproar in the church because they had to cancel communion over this. And they appoint a board of people to go and meet with these two guys after the fact and sort things out. Okay, so that happens. But then after John Bell dies, Josiah Fort petitions the church to have the contents, the minutes of that meeting blacked out. And today, they are literally blacked out. Somebody washed over them with India ink. Wow. That's pretty amazing. So as far as disagreements in the church, that was the biggest thing there. Now, whenever this meeting took place, they, they're, washed, they're blacked out. They've been washed over. Follow up to that, John Bell does get excommunicated from the church due to this charge of usury. But prior to that, there are several other squabbles leading up to that point of him uttering contemptuous words, which I would interpret as using cuss words or curse words towards the elders of the church. And so obviously John and the church are not getting along at all. And if that kind of disagreement is going on there, there's a pretty good chance that you're being perceived in a negative light in, in the rest of the community. But then that's also the community's perception of him, I think largely has to do with what I think took place. So keeping in mind everything we just talked about as far as Scots-Irish understandings of witchcraft, we have to look at what's going on in this community that would make this community interpret an event the way that they did. And this event, I believe, was nothing more than Methodist revival. Now, this is several years after revivalism is technically done, but multiple records indicate that the Methodist revivalism was still going on in little pockets in Robertson County through the 1820s. And that's in a book called The Life and Times of Elder Reuben Ross, who was a, uh, a preacher at the time. And he indicates that these small pockets of revivalism are still going on. And in one of the histories of Methodism, we find that... Uh, the Gunn brothers, who you mentioned, the yes. Methodist preachers, uh, there's an account of one of their revivals going on in 1822. So this is a year after Bell dies, but it accounts for Lucy Bell being present as well as the Johnstons. And it talks about people laying on the floor and people speaking in tongues. So normal, I guess, activities that would accompany a Methodist revival at that time. So we know that it's going on. but our community, religiously speaking, is largely Baptist, Calvinist Baptist specifically. They're all part of this Red River Baptist Church. Now, while the Baptists participated in the revivals and had their own revivals, they largely looked at the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, as they were called, as demon possession, or the work of the devil, or witchcraft, or being bewitched. So, what's interesting here is while John Bell 
is obviously part of the Red River Baptist Church. His family is rarely mentioned. But here we have a record, 1822, that's showing that Lucy Bell is part of the Methodist congregation. So it's possible that I think that the rest of the Bell family is attending this Methodist church, or this Methodist camp meeting, at least. The Johnstons are best friends. They're Methodists. The Guns are Methodists. Now, the Methodist campground where they're having these meetings at, as the crow flies, it's probably 400 yards from where the Bell House sat. So it's very, very close. Think about your descriptions of people coming from miles around the camp in the Bell's yard to get a glimpse of what's going on, to hear the Spirit. Think about the descriptions of people coming from miles around to come and see the Spirit in action. They would camp in the yard, supposedly, just to catch a glimpse of something or hear something. Compare that to the descriptions of Methodist revival meetings, camp meetings, where people would come from miles around the camp just to see somebody overtaken by the Holy Spirit, to see these physical manifestations, to hear speaking in tongues, whether they had any religious affiliation or not. It's a known fact that people would come just to, to watch. So when we take that into consideration, that there's a similarity there, a great similarity, that the Methodist campground is that close to the Bell House, that we have evidence that the Bell family, Sans John, are attending these Methodist camp meetings, it seems to me that we have clear evidence that the Bells are part of this Methodist congregation. There is Methodist revivalism going on, but we have a community, again, that is Calvinist Baptist, views what's taking place as something less than good at best. So taking that, I guess, that context, we have to talk about the 18 teens, just very broadly, the climate of fear that it produced in everybody. Mary Beth Norton touched on this with her study on the Salem Wish Trials. You have the Indian Wars going on north of that into the main frontier, and you have survivors and refugees of that war that are fleeing south and coming into some village, which has its own product of tenuousness and fragility of, of, of everything around you. We have the same product happening here. So let's think about the 1810s and just how tenuous everything was. 1811, 1812, what massive natural disaster takes place? the New Madrid earthquakes. In the life and times of Elder Reuben Ross, there's mentions of people banging on his door, begging for salvation because they believed that the world was about to end. And then that was so intense that we had, you know, ground here in Middle Tennessee swaying like the ocean, supposedly rang church bells in Boston, supposedly knocked President Adams out of bed. 1812, what major event takes place? War of 1812. The War of 1812 is highly overlooked in this situation here. We have the, uh, the major theater of the War of 1812, Battle of New Orleans, and you know, the White House burning, and then Canada. Leading up to that point, you have two major components that create fear in citizens of Middleton Sea. One is the British are coming. The second is the Indians are coming. The Indians is the one to look at here. At this point, by the time we get to the 18 teens, we are. Again, 30 years removed from native warfare in Middle Tennessee. So we're a generation removed. And as time goes on, these stories become larger than life, as, as all stories do. 
but everybody who's here likely knows somebody, knew somebody, has a father, grandfather, older brother, cousin, whomever, that was killed in some sort of violent engagement with Native peoples. The historian Peter Silver states in his book, Our Savage Neighbors, that the idea of anti-Indian sentiment is growing at an exponential level in the 18-teens. And so when we have Tennesseans to hear the report of the attack in Fort Mims in Alabama, they're beside themselves that the Indians are that close again. When the Red Stick Creek attack the settlements on the Duck River, which is just west of Nashville in Humphreys County, and kill several people and kidnap Martha Crawley and kidnap another family closer to uh, Kentucky, I mean, this is literally at their back door. They haven't had to deal with this. And so people are beside themselves with the notion that the Indians are coming. And it's not helped at all by the media at the time where they're reporting the Shawnee leader, Takasa, and his brother, the prophet, or Tenskwatawa, are pushing for this pan-Indian alliance that are going to come and push the white people off of the continent. And so there's a lot of threat of violence. And this threat is so palpable at the time that there's a record that the entire Murray County militia, which is a county, a couple of counties south of Nashville, mobilized over a noise somebody heard in the woods. So people are on edge. So there's an edge of fear to everything, you know. And on top of that, if you look at the War of 1812 service records, nearly everybody between the ages of 18 and 50 in Robertson County is being deployed. They are part of the militia. Some become part of the regular army, but they're going into Alabama and fighting in the Creek War. Some of them wind up up north in Canada, and some of them wind up at the Battle of New Orleans. Needless to say, the warfare in Alabama against the Creek, it would be stupid to say that these men were immune from the effects of PTSD. Right. And you have virtually every male of that age going into that service. And then coming back. And so 1817, when the Bell story starts, the Bell Witch story starts, that's immediately after this return of all the Middle Tennessean soldiers. In the span of 10 years, we have a remarkable concentration of events that affect the frontier community like Robertson County tremendously. That puts them on edge. It puts them on a place of relying on their instinct and their instinct as Scots-Irish descent and Calvinist Baptist is to say that that right there that the Bell family is engaging in is witchcraft. All right. So here's my question for you. How does a park ranger know all this stuff? (laughs) Well, in Tennessee, our state park rangers are required to have college degrees. And we're required to have college degrees in the area that our parks are focused in. And so while I'm over Dunbar Cave State Park, which is a natural area, I'm also over Port Royal State Park, which is a historic area. So my, my education is in Trans-Appalachian Frontier, Early American History, Native American History. And so all of our rangers in Tennessee are specialists in some field. Some of them are biologists, some of them are foresters, some of them are outdoor recreators. We have all kinds of specializations, and that's kind of how we 
pick people that are finely tuned for specific sites across the state. And, but it's also just, it's a personal love and passion of mine. And so continue to, whether I worked in parks or not, I would be researching and writing and publishing. So that's so cool, man. Let me ask you this. How do you feel about that area in general? Visiting this part of the state, I feel is an experience in and of itself. Now I'm partial to it. I live here, but Working at the park for so many years, I've had people that will come in and invariably tell me some variation of, man, there's such an incredible feeling here. And I don't know how to explain that, just in that the sense of place that's present there in northern Robertson County, northern Montgomery County, it's palpable, you know, it's almost tangible. It feels old. In fact, there's newspaper articles from the 1870s and 1880s that will refer to the Red River or Port Royal or the communities around there as ancient and that they feel so much older than everything else around it. And it does kind of feel like you go back in time when you, especially this time of the year, and you're driving out some country road out that way. And there's the haze from the tobacco barns kind of covering the roads everywhere and everything's quiet and the leaves are starting to turn. It's beautiful, but it has a very pressing sense of there's been a lot of people here before you. David, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great interview. You're so welcome. Really, really appreciate it. I also can't thank you again enough for all the pictures and everything. And, I, and please I, mail me the uh, get out of jail free card when I get busted <laughs> smuggling beer into the next park I get caught in. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Dude, what is up with all the stretching? Uh, well. Oh, I know what it is. You started your beach body on demand workouts. <laughs> Why didn't you pick something that was easier? Start? Didn't you pick something called Insanity? You know, they have beginner programs for couch potatoes like you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you, you know, well, I'm not sitting on the couch. I'm sitting in an office chair all day, staring at a computer screen, researching freaky topics, and you forget just how little you're moving around when that's all you're doing. Honestly, though, I gotta say, I kind of like the soreness a little bit. I missed it. It reminds me of when I actually used to exercise regularly, which is kind of why I wanted to challenge myself. As strange as that sounds, I know exactly what you mean. I'm also doing a lot of sitting at a desk, and it's terrible for my back, it, not to mention my midsection. <laughs> well, that's what's great about an at-home fitness platform like Beachbody On Demand. You can preview any of their workouts and find the one you like best because you can access over 600 of them. Last week, we mentioned some of their more popular programs they offer, and that you probably heard of, like Payo and Insanity, but there's also a lot of workouts that feature music you like and are more dance-focused, so it doesn't really feel like working out. Programs like Size, Country Heat, if you like country music, Hip Hop Abs, or Brazil Butt Lift. No, that's uh, maybe uh, one... Uh, it, uh, hey, hey, look, look, I'm, I'm just saying that they have something for every taste and every fitness level, from yoga and low impact to hardcore fat burning and muscle building. Right. Well, no matter which one you pick, <laughs> Beachbody On Demand is the total fitness package because it includes step-by-step -step program guides, workout calendars, and comprehensive nutrition plans, all designed to be something you can stick with. You can do these workouts anywhere you want since they're streamable on any web-enabled device. Start getting in shape for all those holiday parties coming up with a free trial membership. Just text the word LEGENDS to the number 303030 and you'll get full access to this entire platform for free. It's time to start looking and feeling better. So once again, to get unlimited access to the entire platform with a free trial membership, just text the word L-E-G-E-N-D-S to the number 303030. 
Hi, I'm Scarlett, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. So have you ever been camping in a national park and one of those evenings, it's like, we're getting a talk from Ranger so-and-so, and and he's going to tell us all about the local history. Yeah. Yeah, That's what you just got. Yes. Yeah. For free. You didn't have to go camping. You didn't have to get dirty <laughs> or eat at a picnic table. Yeah. You might be, I don't know, right now. But uh, he is so knowledgeable about the whole area. And he gave such an enlightening overview of the whole history, the political, social, religious mindset of the time, what was going on right then. So it really paints the broader picture, which was fascinating. There's a lot going on, and he makes some good points. Now, whether he personally believes in something supernatural going on, what we know from his comments before is that he's definitely experienced some things that were unexplainable, so he's open to it. But in this case, it's a much bigger, broader picture, as we've come to learn ourselves. And here's something that we couldn't get into the show because it's still developing, but Tess, our very own Tess, who runs the Astonishing Research Corps, had uh, some differences of opinion with David about his view of possible explanations behind the Bell Witch scenario. And so we put the two of them together, and Tess came up with a series of questions for him, which he is in turn answering because they're having kind of a healthy debate about what's happening there and how it might compare to the Salem witch trials and that sort of thing, which she has a differing opinion on compared to him. She has studied Salem and... Extensively. Extensively. So early colonial witchcraft and that history and, and legend, his connection with that to what was going on here, she has some differing opinions as far as like being a significantly different enough scenario going on than maybe he was uh, alluding to. So that's going to be an interesting uh, back and forth Q&A and uh, rebuttal answer, that kind of thing. So, yeah, and we'll be publishing that in our newsletters for all our patrons when that debate gets played out and uh, we get those answers back from David. But still, it was very good having him on. David, if you're listening, I just want to say thank you again for coming on the show. And some of the talking points that I thought were interesting that he mentioned was when he mentioned a little bit that things got a little crazier the closer you got to Adams in terms of people blaming things on the Bell Witch. And he was sort of saying, well, this is just, you know, it's because it's part of the local zeitgeist. It's the cultural yeah. behavior that's going on there, and, and people are going to blame stuff on the Bell Witch like his cable TV guy. And <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. But then the other thing about that that I always wonder is, and you and I both wonder, and it's part of the reason we do the show, is the kernel of truth that's down there at the bottom. What if maybe things are going a little bit more wrong? Yeah in Adams because the Bell Witch has an influence. And maybe it's something that's been around a long time, and maybe there is something to it, or maybe people just think there is because that's what they want to blame things on. But what a lot of people say who've been to the area and know it well is that there's a palpable vibe, and uh, not necessarily spooky, just kind of mystical and spiritual maybe. As Ranger Britton says, it's been inhabited for a long, long time, and you can kind of feel the uh, the energy of the human lives there, and a lot of tragedy and a lot of misery, but just that heavy presence of something in the area going on. Now, that's certainly not exclusive to this area, because a lot of people around the world say that. We have a lot of people from Scotland who claim that in different areas, that there's a presence there that you can feel in certain areas, and it's kind of magical. And there are places all over the world that, as we'd said before, are the thin places, yeah. where people just, there's a lot of stuff going on here. There's something magical about it. 
I think Adams, Tennessee just happens to be one of those. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I certainly agree with David's point of view because he grew up there and he lives there and he works there. He's living in his grandmother's house. I mean, he's part and parcel of that area. I think some of the other things that he said were really fascinating. I think it was interesting how he talked about the fact that John Bell was actually not necessarily all that rich. He didn't have a thousand acres. He had yeah. several hundred. He was, you know, still okay. But at that time, that acreage didn't mean what it means these days. Now, he was well-respected in uh, in Adams, but he wasn't like hugely successful is what he's saying, because yeah. the idea is making him seem more successful. That adds to the credibility of the Bellwitch story. Well, and it's hard to know. It really yeah. depends on whether or not the book is true and what Ingram wrote is true. Because, I mean, the fact is he was apparently excommunicated for usury, which is loan sharking. Well, he, yeah, jacking up the, the yeah. rates on your loans, yeah. Yeah, he cussed out the elders at the church. This was the most fascinating part of what Britton shared. It was not something that we had seen in any of our research about the altercation that he had with Josiah Fort yes. that was settled by the church. And then after Bell died, Fort had it all redacted from the church records. What was going on there? And I'm, it's going to play into my theory at the end of the show, but it's interesting that that whole thing that was apparently resolved by the church bothered Fort so much for whatever reason, or he wanted to cover something up, yeah. that it was blacked out with India ink from the church records. And I think that's just something to keep in mind when you look at this story. Nobody goes deeper on this stuff than we do, folks. Uh, yeah, probably, but uh, uh, none are more charming than we are. Oh, yeah. is that what it is? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> One of the more famous stories about the Bell Witch Encounters actually puts former President Andrew Jackson at the Bell House well before he was elected, where he and his entourage supposedly encountered the Bell Witch themselves. And there are many accounts of this story, but we're going to share the details of the one from Dr. Charles Bailey Bell's book, which we've mentioned already tonight, The Bell Witch, A Mysterious Spirit. Now, according to family legend, Jackson, the man who's been on the U.S. $20 bill since 1928, was well acquainted with John Bell Jr., as they had fought together along with John Bell Sr. at the last battle of the War of 1812, the Battle of New Orleans. The British were attempting to seize not only New Orleans, but all of the territory the U.S. had come by through the Louisiana Purchase. It lasted 12 days, with the British outnumbering the Americans 3 to 1, having almost 14,450 troops to General Jackson's 4,732. What they needed was a miracle, and a miracle was what they got. The seemingly unbelievable victory was actually attributed to a real miracle that Jackson himself gave thanks for in person. You see, the Ursuline nuns and a large collection of the faithful had gathered in their convent's chapel in front of the statue of Our Lady of Prompt Succor, a depiction of the Virgin Mary. Quoting Wikipedia, Under this Marian title, the Virgin Mary is designated as the principal patroness of Louisiana and the Archdiocese of New Orleans, dated from a 1928 papal bull from the Sacred Congregation of Rites. End quote. The nuns and the faithful prayed all night for New Orleans and the American forces, and in the morning, the very Reverend William de Bourg offered mass on the altar where Our Lady of Prompt Succor had been placed. Mother St. Marie Olivier de Vézine vowed to have Thanksgiving Mass sung annually if the city was saved and the Americans won. At the exact time communion was given, a courier burst into the chapel to tell everyone there that the British had been defeated. Andrew Jackson actually went there in person to the convent stating, quote, by the blessing of heaven, directing the valor of the troops under my command, one of the most brilliant victories in the annals of war was obtained, end quote. 
Wow, well, it's crazy how many times history could have turned on a dime. Uh, yeah, imagine how different this country would be had that battle been lost. Yeah, but you know what? That happens quite a bit, especially in the Revolutionary War, which uh, we were outnumbered and should have lost, but somehow we won that one. And it happened all throughout World War One and World War II. Strange happenings. I remember the story, and I don't have any uh, citations of confirmation on this, but I'd heard a bomber that was out in the desert was looking for a German ammo dump or fuel dump, and uh, they couldn't find it. Everything's very camouflaged. They had to turn back, and finally they just said, we have to get lighter, we have to drop some bombs. Drop the bombs, hit the ammo dump, just by accident. Oh my gosh. You know, severely limiting the capabilities of the Germans in the in the North African desert. So yeah. strange things happen, especially in wartime. And here, it's like this directly ties in because, again, it goes to the popularity of Andrew Jackson as a military hero, him being a major general at the time. And what it goes to, if you're looking at this as folklore, is that his visit adds a lot of credibility to the story. If you believe the visitation happened, now there's some skeptics that say there's no record of it, he never wrote of it, but we also found information that indicated that he did have land very nearby, and the other thing is that he fought with John Bell Sr. and John Bell Jr. at the Battle of New Orleans. Now, when you're looking at a battle like that, that's this miraculous battle, I mean, yes, there were over 4,000 soldiers there, but they defeated the British Army in the face of a three-to-one margin. It's a bonding experience, and it seems entirely plausible that John Sr. and John Jr. both did, in fact, know Jackson, and if he had land nearby, that the story of the famous Bell Witch certainly would have gotten back to him. And as a person who clearly believes in miracles, why wouldn't he want to go check that out? (laughs) That's a good point, yeah. There's not much record of him actually being there. And, of course, some of the skeptics will say, well, look, he's a very well-known person at this time, His travels were very well documented, but what we're saying is that, yeah, it's not very well documented, if at all, but it's not impossible that he showed up. So take a listen to this. This is from page 87 of the Bell Witch Anthology from Dr. Charles Bailey Bell's book, The Bell Witch, A Mysterious Spirit. General Jackson and Betsy's brother were well acquainted, but John Jr. was not at home on the occasion of the general's visit. Knowing of the many visitors to the Bell home, General Jackson thought it would be better to camp, so his party had a wagon loaded with a tent and camping outfit, and they followed on horseback. When the wagon was a short distance from the Bell home, it suddenly stopped. The driver could not make his horses budge the wagon. All his yelling and whipping of the horses were of no avail. The team was simply unable to start the wagon. Not a wheel turned, although they were on level ground. The general examined the wagon and said there was no reason why the horses could not pull it. The driver again tried them without success. The general then shouted, it is the witch. A voice called from the roadside. They can go on now, general. Neither the general nor the men with him could see anyone, but distinctly heard the voice and its promise to see them that night. Betsy said as soon as her father saw General Jackson, He had him and the entire party come to the house and entertained them with a good dinner and stories of when the Indians were on the farm and of the mounds and relics of the mound builders. In the party was a man who claimed to be a real witch tamer, and he thought no witch would appear while he was present. The other members of the party had been bragging on him and on his having the witch bluffed. He said his pistol was loaded with a silver bullet and he just wanted to try it out on this witch. Finally, he dared the witch out. The general was beginning to be impatient at the delay in the appearance of the witch. 
when suddenly the braggart jumped from his chair, grabbed at the seat of his trousers, and shouted, Boys, I'm being stuck by a thousand pins. A voice spoke out, I am in front of you, shoot. The man drew his pistol and tried to shoot, but it would not fire. Then the voice cried, It's my night for fun. Soon there was heard repeated slapping of the man's jaws, and he yelled, It's pulling my nose off. Making a break for the door, which flew open, he jumped out, running with all his speed toward the wagon, yelling every step while the voice kept giving him all sorts of advice. General Jackson fairly roared with laughter and told her father that he had never seen or heard anything so funny and mysterious and would like to stay a week, which he was invited to do. Again the voice spoke, saying, There's another fraud in your party, General. I'll get him tomorrow night. It's getting late. Go to bed. The rest of General Jackson's party could not be prevailed upon to spend another night after that. They said no telling who would be the next victim. General Jackson told them he knew this fellow was going to be shown up and he wanted to stay over, but by noon, the party was at Springfield, 12 miles away. They never came back. Wow, see, that really adds to the folklore, and especially now you're tying in a president. And I saw this quote from uh, Brian Dunning's article on it. It's from Jackson. I'd rather fight the entire British army than to deal with the Bell Witch. And uh, there you go. Yeah. Well, 10 years later, he became our seventh president. So tying him to it adds a little bit of a uh, kick to it, some veracity. Well, it you know seems, what I'm saying? To, again, it's another thing that seems to happen with a lot of these legends. And it's one of my favorite things about this process of doing this show with you, Forrest, and where we've come since we started. Yeah. When we set out and I was like, I want to experience something crazy, and <laughs> which fortunately we haven't so far, but we've only been in Blanket Fortiana for that. Next year, we are in fact going to one of the most haunted houses in the country to do an on-site session uh, where absolutely nothing will happen yeah to, uh, to paranormal no we'll have a good time we're hoping something happens but if it doesn't it doesn't and also if something does happen i would prefer that it not attach itself to me for the rest of my life <laughs> right. but anyway yeah. my point is just like when you look at the jersey devil we have relatives of napoleon we have these yeah. statesmen that are involved and when you look at there's always that guy it's almost like predictable now there's, you know, well, the future president came by and checked this out, or, you know, well, yeah. it's, you know, there was a UFO here and Bill Shatner showed up, you know. <laughs> yeah, so there's right. always that person yeah. that maybe somebody just added to give it that extra degree of plausibility. Yeah, but that's a great analogy there. And I we mentioned that earlier with the Jersey Devil about everybody blaming everything on it. Classic folklore, it's got all these, uh, the, the red flags of being a tall tale, you got somebody famous tied to it. And certainly though that's true. But is that a chicken and egg thing? Is That's just an element of some kernel of weird truth happening that then these elements naturally occur with a story, a folkloric story like that, like the Jersey Devil. But what I can tell you is Andrew Jackson died in 1845, and this yeah. book was published in 1894. So it's not Martin, like he was going to dispute yes. it. Right, right. Martin yeah. Ingram's book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, uh, there's other reports that, no, that was part of the family lore. So true. Th that That's was true. part of the family oral tradition. And a lot of people will discount that, not even pay attention to it because they say, well, that's totally unverifiable. And, and that's true. But imagine your own family and the stories that were passed down by beloved relatives. And maybe you were lucky to have met your own great grandparents. And so that's a few generations there. And you should know what kind of people they were. And when they told you something was true about the family, well, you may not have any proof for it, but you believe that they believed it. 
We're at that point in the show where we're going to start talking about the theories a little bit. And we have one more interview we want to share with you. I know it's hard to believe because you've already been listening for umpteen billion hours. I actually, at this point where it's raw, we can't tell how long it's going to be. I do know it's going to be a long show, but we wanted to supersize this stuff for you for October because it's a fun time of year to listen to stories like this. And when, when we get done, we don't want you to have a whole lot of questions about what happened here. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, there, like, there will always be comments about, uh, hey, you forgot to mention this. Yes. Like, Dang, you're right. We should have mentioned that. Yeah. Or a lot of people uh, criticizing us because that just comes with the territory. Yes. Well, that's just part of being internet yeah. famous, which is the same thing as not famous at all. Exactly. All right. So here's one thing I did want to talk about. I was talking about John Bell. We did not mention one of the afflictions that he had with regard to his face and his difficulty swallowing. It's widely thought that he had Bell's palsy. which N- Not um, named after him. Not named after him. I did look that up because I was very curious about it, but it was named for a Dr. Bell from across the pond. Uh-huh. But I can't remember the year is what I guess I'm saying, but it was earlier. Bell's palsy is a partial paralysis of facial muscles and uh, can also affect your ability to swallow and sure. chew and that sort of thing. And it can also come and go. And I have particular experience with it because a friend of mine that I worked with several years ago had it. Mm. Theoretically, I can't stand by this, but I think Stallone has it. That's why his face, his mouth does that kind of uh, Stallone thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> it works for him, but I have heard that. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, that could be a real sort of mundane explanation as to part of the contortions and the facial contortions and the reactions that John Bell was having during his attacks. So I just want to make sure that we didn't leave that out, speaking of things not to leave behind. You know, they had limited knowledge of medicine back then. If you see somebody contorting and twisting and jerking and they're having trouble swallowing, a lot of difficulty, there's a a scrunching up of one side of the face, it's very disturbing to see. You might attribute that to some kind of witchcraft or something, or it just adds to it. Yes. And it could be a totally medical phenomenon. And this goes, by the way, to one of the points that Tess was having a contention with Park Ranger Britton about, because he mentioned a few times some of the the idea of speaking in tongues and the contortions and barking like a dog. There's not a whole lot of those specific details associated with the Bell case. Right. I do believe that the framework of the religious activity, there's maybe more common ground there. But that was part of what they got into with their questions. And like we said, You'll be able to find that in the new whatever newsletter test decides to put it in. And also if we make it a blog entry, they're back and forth with regard to that topic. Because it is interesting debating the similarities and the differences between the Bell Witch story and the Salem Witch trials. But let's talk about some of the motivations. One of the things that's often been debated is were they just trying to make money? And yeah. That would work, I guess, but according to Ingram's book, when you look at that and when you look also at Our Family Trouble, they never charged anyone anything. There is no lore associated with the story within or without those books that says they ever set up a money collection system. (laughs) In fact, it was said that they were very generous to the point where when people showed up, they were allowed to stay more or less as long as they wanted. They fed them. They allowed them to sleep in the house, but when there was too many to fit in the house, they would have tents in the yard. So there was a lot of uh, proclamations that they never really took advantage of anything with regard to this financially at all. And even initially, they kept the whole thing a secret which is not what you do if you're profiteering. Again, we stated a lot of this in part one, coming from uh, Dr. Jim Brooks's book, The Bell Witch Stories You've Never Heard from the Family That Lived Next Door, and he was part of the Johnston lineage. And according to their family lore and tradition and and stories passed down, is they lost money because they were feeding so many people because they were generous. 
And imagine to a fault. Yeah, according to the books. Yeah. Uh, right, ex- exactly. According Written to the by books. the Bell family and Bell family descendants, <laughs> well, and possibly yeah. a journalist who's just trying to make a buck. We'll yeah. talk about that in a minute. Okay. okay. Well, no one's ever said. There's been no record that, like, man, they made a killing off that because they had Woodstock on their lawn every night for this ghost show. This is this. Yeah. 18th century laser ghost show. There's nothing, (laughs) there's no evidence of uh, them raking in money and charging admission and putting on a show, but that generated so much interest. Also, as we mentioned in part one, they start off being very horribly embarrassed by this. And so to me, that will dampen and tamp down a few of the other theories about why they did this for kind of generating publicity in that this is not the kind of publicity you want. As I stated in part one, the people that we've talked to that have had these kind of experiences don't tell other people because other people tend to shun them. Yeah. If it's some kind of idea of like, hey, this will get us more money or get us out of this or that, not the best idea. And another theory that's been bandied about is that this was some kind of ploy to get uh, undesirables out of the territory, out of the area, to move, to be freaked out, or it was perpetrated by the Bells. Okay, I'm going to call this the Scooby-Doo theory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, that they were doing this to spook people and get their land, get that darn land from them because they're so scared. I can do that laugh pretty good. My I, son thinks I'm really good at it. You know, go ahead. Right, go so do it. <laughs> it's not bad. It's yeah. very hard. You have to really push the... <laughs> it took me a year to get that together. Yeah, you almost uh, sparked a myocardial infarction there. So. Well, you know, what I'm hoping right now is that many thousands of our listeners are all trying to do it and seeing how hard it is. <laughs> yeah, that's what we want you to know. We really struggled the to The Scooby-Doo uh, laugh you. is, yeah, very difficult. <laughs> I know it's silly, but the idea, though, is a real one as far as what was happening here in that... Yeah, these are big plots of land, but as David Britton had mentioned, there's tons of land. Yeah. It's not like in the colonies where people are scratching and fighting for these little plots because it's so densely populated and they are struggling for food and they'd worn out the land so much. I'd learned that uh, from the Great Courses Plus. Basically, they kept planting the land uh, over and over that they'd have to keep moving. So that was a spur to go west. They'd overplanted with tobacco on all the coastal states and the colonies, they'd worn it out. It needed to recover. So here, though, that kind of falls apart for me, that they were out to gain the land around them. It's like, there's hundreds of acres for everybody. And another thing that he mentioned, it's like, that's a lot of land as we see it now, but they were granting uh, a lot of land to soldiers who went and fought. So 210 or 220 acres for every year they fought. Yeah, so that's a lot of land. And uh, so it wasn't, again, like the Bells were fabulously wealthy, but they weren't lacking for their neighbor's land. And yeah. so I, yeah. I think that one kind of falls flat. Well, here's the other thing. It's the whole idea of a hoax. And there's a lot of different ways that this could be a hoax or could have been a hoax. The thing that I think about when I consider whether or not it was a hoax, the first thing I think about is how complex the mythology is around it. This is going to lead us into a discussion about some of the skeptical viewpoints of this story. So I'm going to go ahead and say, I recognize if any skeptics are taking a look at the story, if I just say, well, the mythology is so complex, it must be real. <laughs> I know that that has, doesn't hold any water, but still it is interesting to me because it indicates either that there's some kernel of truth to everything or whoever has fabricated it 
is a seriously talented and creative person. Now, those people exist. Lots of people invent entire worlds magnificently, like George R.R. R. Martin with Game of Thrones, or you, if you want to go back to a long time ago, Frank Herbert created a whole universe. You know, it's, I was just about to say Dune. It's, yeah, and, it's and unbelievable. Some, yeah, yeah. So people are obviously capable of that, and I'm not saying that somebody couldn't have just come along and made this story up, but... There are people that will also tell you, including one of our listeners that I was chatting with on Twitter this week, this story affects a lot of real people and their real descendants. And if a lot of it is made up and fake, you're dealing with something of a conspiracy to keep it quiet from a lot of people. And one generally can tell you that with regard to conspiracies, the more people that are involved, the less likely it is to be real because people cannot keep their mouths shut. (laughs) Yes. There's a lot of things about it that do seem real to me. The whole ventriloquism aspect, I'm sorry, I just don't buy it any more than I buy owls. It's just not plausible to me that Betsy Bell or Joel Bell were so good at ventriloquism that they fooled all these people that came. If you're believing the Ingram account as about all the people that came and all the people that investigated and that all of this actually happened, that a couple of kids are successfully throwing their voices and also beating the crap out of full-grown adults <laughs> yeah. in the dark and able to move themselves back to their beds or wherever they were and the time it takes to light a candle. I just, maybe once, maybe twice, not over and over and over again. I just don't buy it. I just don't buy it. <laughs> well, that's, it's absurd. Yeah. No, of course. If you're going to cherry pick this, it's like, well, I don't think the slapping happened, but maybe the voice thing happened. So then she's basically the winner of 19th century America's Got Talent. And she's she's so gifted. Yeah, she's the Jeff Dunham of her time. Right. uh, With judges Andrew Jackson and Howie Mandel. (laughs) Very good. She is not only throwing her voice, but think about this. She's an 11-year-old girl, and she's starting off as, okay, doing the faint voices, but then fully formed and mature woman voices. Yeah. And men. and Or if, a male, well, one male voice. I can't remember who it was. That's right. It was topography or mathematics. One of them was a male voice. Yes. So yeah, uh, how are you doing that? How's <laughs> Betsy doing that? Well, then you can say, well, it's Joel, but like, I don't know. I mean, Joel was the one that got beaten the worst out of all the kids. Yeah. So they're either in on it or then you have to start cherry picking what you want to believe about this because if you take the whole legend and try and explain it away with ventriloquism, Then she's doing the voices of an English investigator and his parents overseas. Right. And then she's doing these amazing feats. And then she's using the ventriloquism to recite hymns. It just gets out of hand. So, again, as I said, probably with the KH incident, like... KH is our shorthand for Kelly Hopkinsville, folks. Sorry, he he went ahead and said it, but we (laughs) were so tired of saying the whole name. Yes, yes. (laughs) But my point there is that then it's probably best not to believe any of it because... When you start cherry picking, like, well, that makes sense, and I'm going to explain that here, but that's crazy. It's like now it's some big muddy pool of doubt and crazy explanations, and I and I think ventriloquism is kind of silly with this one. Yeah, and I think also there's another argument. We're going to hear a little bit more about this in a minute, but that suggests that Richard Williams Bell, who wrote Our Family Trouble, which is the earliest document associated with the case, there's a suggestion that M.V. Ingram and Richard Williams Bell are really the same person, or that Ingram had such a heavy hand in Richard Williams Bell's publication. Now, Richard was one of John Bell Sr.'s sons, 
And that manuscript was based on notes that he took. He was six to 10 years old when it took place. We've said this before, but I'm just reminding everybody. And when he got older, he compiled them into something that he then handed over to his son right before he died, Mr. J. Abel, the Honorable J. Abel, who was a state representative, who in turn gave it to M.V. Ingram, who then published it as a chapter in his book, The Authenticated History of the Bell Witch. You would not believe how much stuff we have to read and study to make a sentence like the one I just said. It's literally uh, yeah. hours of work just to be able to concisely explain something like that in one sentence. Anyway, Joe Nickel, who we're going to be talking about in a little bit, makes some very good points in the comparison of the two documents, do make them seem like they were authored by the same person. Yeah, and we'll talk about this in greater detail, but we always looked at Joe's articles yeah. just to see what's that thinking there. Yes, we do. But before we go on to our discussion about Joe and our next interview, which is going to be a gear change for us, we did want to share one more interesting story that we had Ryan do some sound design for. I really love this one. This is another case of the witch or the bell witch spirit acting very benevolently in an effort to help the children. And this also involves her taking direct control of animals, almost like a mind control over these animals uh, using the force, as it were. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to go to that story right now. Okay. The boy stuck in the cave was not the only one saved by the Bell Witch spirit. Another story in Dr. Charles Bailey Bell's book, The Bell Witch and Mysterious Spirit, details how the witch not only saved the children again, but she did it through direct control of panicked animals. We're relaying this short story here to you in our own words. Apparently, the kids were down in the riverbed exploring. They like to go down there not only to fish, as we've said, but also to search for Native American artifacts, as there were lots of mounds in the area. And no doubt, the children took to desecrating them without much thought back in those days. They searched for arrowheads and tomahawks with some regularity, it would seem. On one of these outings, they were warned by the spirit of the Bell Witch not to go, for there was a terrible storm on its way and it would be dangerous. Well, since the spirit frequently made things up and pulled pranks on the entire family, the kids ignored the advice and went anyway. Sure enough, as they were exploring the banks of the Red River, a storm quickly blew up. The trees began swaying mightily in the wind, and a downpour ensued. Branches broke free, falling dangerously close to them as they hit the ground. As the storm whirled around them, the bell witch's voice rang out. Cross the river now. It will be too late soon. Some of you will surely die if you don't. The kids were frightened and wanted to get home, but the Red River had started to rise. And although still crossable, it was beginning to rage. As they led their horses to the bank of the water, the horses reared up, neighing and panicking, refusing to cross. At that moment, Kate's voice echoed through the storm. You little fools, hold tight now and say nothing to the horses. And with that, the horses calmly walked down to the riverbank and crossed the river, taking the kids home. Their path was dotted with downed trees along the way. The danger Kate had warned them about had been real, more real than they could have imagined. I think the Parcast Network has another podcast hit on their hands. Oh yeah, you must be talking about their new show, Cults. You know it. We told everybody about their hit show, Serial Killers, a while back, and everyone I've got to subscribe to it has loved it, and we think you're going to love Cults too. I, you know, I, I always feel a little weird saying, you're going to love serial killers, <laughs> or go look for cults, but we really do think you're going to love cults. 
See, I, I feel weird again. <laughs> no, I think people know we're not saying to go look for serial killers or go join a cult. Those things never end well. But seriously, if you like our show, we know you're going to love cults too. Hmm, you know what? That one, that one felt fine. Well, the fantastic hosts, Greg Paulson and Vanessa Richardson, are back at it with a really interesting angle in that genre, which is the very specific mechanics of how cults get started and why people join them. Just like us, they always really dive deep into the research with the evidence, the history, and especially the psychological profiles. Because what everyone wants to know is, what's behind all the mystery and manipulation? That's exactly what each episode of Cults tries to answer when they analyze the biographical profiles of the cult leaders and the people that let themselves be manipulated into committing horrible crimes. Not only that, you'll hear real audio clips from the cult leaders and their followers, and man, it is truly creepy and disturbing. And just like with our astonishing research core, the cult's team and researchers do a great job of digging up little-known facts about each cult and its history as they break down the stories. And right now, you can check out episodes about the Manson family and the Heaven's Gate cult. No, oh, Heaven's Gate. It's a UFO cult. It's the best of both worlds. And I just listened to the Manson episodes. That one particularly interests me because... I live close by to one of the crime scenes, so yeah. Well, (laughs) with a new episode coming out every Tuesday, you can expect episodes on the People's Temple and many more. Visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and search for cults. Again, that's C-U-L-T-S. Or visit parcast.com slash cults to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash cults to listen now. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Derek Smith. Now back to the show. All right. Well, believe it or not, and you probably don't believe it, we always do look for the skeptical argument in any subject we cover because we look at the way out wacko stuff and we look at the uh, hardcore skeptical stuff. We try and find ourselves somewhere in the middle And as usual, what we found is that a lot of them come from just a few people. And one of our favorites is Joe Nickel. Joe wrote up an examination of the folklore surrounding the Bell Witch for the publication Skeptical Inquirer for Joe's investigative files section, or you could say it's a column, numbered volume 38.1 and just published January, February 2014 on the website for the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, or CSI. We've talked about them before, of course, the last time being for the Kelly Hopkinsville case and how CSI is a program for the parent organization, Center for Inquiry, and how the Skeptical Inquirer is their official journal, and they shorten their name from, it used to be PSYCOP. We love that name, too. Yes, C-S-I-C-O-P, or Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. The general summation of Joe's findings is that Martin V. Ingram's account from 1894 is most likely fictionalized or greatly embellished, and that if there was any actual poltergeist-like activity at the time, it was probably all due to Betsy Bell herself because it, quote, sounds suspiciously like an example of the poltergeist faking syndrome in which someone, typically a child, causes the mischief, unquote. Yeah, a significant part of Joe's article examines the main written record we're all going off of, which again is Ingram's An Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch, published in 1894, and it's about 73 years after the death of John Bell Sr., and 48 years after the date of Richard Williams Bell's account, Our Family Trouble, supposedly written around 1846, which was contained within Ingram's book, sandwiched in there, as it said. 
Now, Joe has carefully analyzed both texts, looking for telling patterns or inconsistencies. And he believes he has found a couple of anachronisms, one being that in Ingram's presentation of Our Family Trouble, Richard Williams Bell's account is written in the context of modern spiritualism, supposedly in 1846. But according to Joe Nickel, modern spiritualism, quote, did not flourish until the decades after 1848 when the Fox sisters sparked new interest in supposed spirit communication, unquote. Another anachronism, or you could say it's something that is attributed to an earlier date but could not be possible because it didn't exist until a later date, now these are the references in the Bell narrative to the term private detectives or the detective business. And it's another anachronism, according to Joe, because the term would not have been used in 1817 to 1821 in America, since it seems to have first originated in 1840 in England as an adjective. And the earliest known use of the word as a noun in America appears to be 1853. Joe also compared words, phrases, expressions, paragraph links, and literary allusions used by both Ingram and Richard Williams Bell, and has found enough similarities to make him suggest there is strong evidence that points to Ingram as the one who's the primary author of Bell's narrative, which was the first narrative. In fact, he's pretty certain of it, saying, quote, Given all of these similarities between the texts, in addition to the other evidence, I have little hesitation in concluding that Ingram was the author of Bell. Another pattern that causes Joe to question the authenticity or purpose of Ingram's account is that he believes he's found many instances of Masonic symbolism, metaphor, and allegory in both Bell's Our Family Trouble and the rest of Ingram's telling of the Bell story, and specifically, for example, in the treasure hunt tale. If you remember, that's where the Bell Witch convinces a group of men to dig under a large stone for a buried treasure on the southwestern corner of John Bell's land, which turns out to be nothing more than a prank by her. So, all these similarities, and a few we haven't mentioned, lead Joe Nickel to conclude, quote, Indeed, the evidence indicates Ingram actually wrote the narrative attributed to Bell. Well, this Masonic theme caught our interest, not only because the tenets and mystery of Freemasonry are fascinating to us, but we're simply just wondering, were Joe's points and definitions about Masonic elements in Ingram's account accurate? And also, what would be the purpose for Ingram to put all that into his book? Now, Joe says that Ingram was a long-standing Mason, citing his obituary in 1909, so it seems likely that he was aware of the symbolism and rituals. But why put those in? So if you believe it was all fiction or fake lore, as Joe says, I love that term, actually. There's folklore, and then there's fake lore. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, as Joe says, were the Masonic themes just a ghost story writing aid, or was he trying to embed tenets of Freemasonry into popular Southern folklore? And was any of it accurate? Well, it just so happens we could ask our friend of the show and resident Master Mason and Masonic historian Mike Ramos. You actually heard Mike weigh in on our show before in a series that dealt a little with Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism, The Count of St. Germain. But before we go any further and get on with Mike's interview, we said it then and we'll say it again that Joe Nickel is one of our favorite paranormal investigators and we have tremendous respect for him and his work. And the reason we usually look to him to see if he's covered a subject along with all of our other sources is that he represents some of the most well-researched, balanced, objective, clear-headed, and rational thinking from the skeptical side of the aisle. Perhaps too simply put, you could say that this field of the study of the paranormal and the supernatural is a giant argument about the unquantifiable or the imaginary. 
And maybe in some aspects that's right, but at the heart of it, it should be a civil, friendly discussion. And in discussions about often contentious ideas, sometimes those ideas are questioned. And that's all that's happening here. A lot of times we're mostly aligned with Joe's ideas, like with Kecksburg. And sometimes we have, let's say, alternative conclusions, as with Kelly Hopkinsville. So when we asked Mike Ramos what he thought about Joe's hypotheses and the tie-ins with masonry, it's only because we didn't know that much about it. It is, after all, a secret society. And finally, just as a reminder, Mike's statements are his alone and do not necessarily reflect those of Astonishing Legends. All right, so let's get to it. So I'm going to introduce Mike now for those of you who don't remember him from the Count of St. Germain. His full name is Michael Ramos, and he is a past master as well as a current sitting master. He is second principal in his Royal Arch Chapter and is involved as an officer and member within the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite, Royal and Select Masters, Knights Templar, Allied Masonic Degrees, Knight Masons, and various Masonic research organizations with a personal primary focus on Masonic history, symbolism, and ritual. My name is Mike, and I am a Freemason in Northern California. I'm a past master, as well as being um, a member of many different appended and concordant bodies. Okay. Fair enough? Yeah, fair enough. And so you also have some expertise in the history of Masons as well, right? Yeah, I'm a big portion of what I focus my time on is the history and symbolism, different currents within early Masonic practices, which if you can dial into the history and if you can dial into the currents and the interests of the men who helped formulate a standard for Freemasonry in the early 1700s, you actually have a far better idea of what they were thinking about, which then lends itself to greater depths regarding our symbolism in the institution. Okay, great. So are you familiar with the story of the Bell Witch? Yes and no, I guess. When I saw it was coming up on the podcast, that obviously sparked my interest. Then secondly, listening to part one, I went, wow, this is all new to me. Then all of a sudden, something about it seemed somewhat familiar and then realized that I had watched a movie that was loosely based on the story. But as far as having a, a good grasp on it or prior knowledge, I would have to say no. All right, so in looking at this story, I guess one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about the most was we were going to take a look at some of the more famous skeptics or professional skeptics' points of view on the story. And most specifically, we were going to look at uh, Joe Nickel because he had an interesting piece on it in The Skeptical Inquirer, volume 38.1, which was published for January or in February of 2014, which is part of the Committee on Skeptical Inquiry, for which Mr. Nickel is a senior research fellow. And in addition to that, he is also an associate dean of the Center for Inquiry Institute. He's written over 30 books, according to his Wikipedia page, and he's somebody that we admire and respect very much. And in the piece we're referring to that he published on the Bell Witch case, he had speculated based on M.V. Ingram's book, The Authenticated Story of the Famous Bell Witch, that there was a lot of Masonic symbolism in there, and he felt like that that might be an explanation for some of the details that were in the story of the Bell Witch. Okay. The first person I thought of was you, being our Mason at large. (laughs) 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 I I wanted to know what you thought, because one of the things that he talked about was he talked about when she sent the family on the treasure hunt and how they went and lifted this huge stone and had to dig this hole that was six feet by six feet by six feet, supposedly, Mm -hmm. which they didn't quite finish. And then he went on to mention how that tied into Masonic symbolism. And then he goes on to speak about 
the idea that when just before John Bell died, when they went out to separate the hogs and he was being attacked on the way to and from the house and his shoes were being torn off, that that was uh, <laughs> symbolic as yeah. well. And I sent you the article that Nickel wrote, and yeah. I just wanted to ask you what your perception was of those details that he was extrapolating from the story and how they might relate to Freemasonry. Yeah, and I'm more than happy. Um, I went through the article and I made small notes next to the sections of where Mr. Nichols' own opinion, he believed that he was pointing out Masonic symbolism. How do you feel about the connection that's made there between some of the tales that are told in this legend and a possible connection to Freemasonry? Well, to be honest with you, after I listened to part one thoroughly, and then I sat down with the article and I printed it out, and I started making just little tiny notes. If you and Forrest were to send this to me and say, Mike, if you have some time, can you read this article? And we just want to see if you can find any symbolism in it at all. Okay, so I'm not taking that that you're looking for Masonic symbolism or any certain brand of symbolism tied back to a spiritual movement or an organization or anything. I would have come back and just said, well, the only symbolism that I can take away from this, it feels like is impending death or impending doom, which I think is kind of normal when you're dealing in a story of this nature. But we can kind of move through some of these that he called out, and I can go ahead and just kind of give you my thoughts, if you'd like to do that. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. All right, great. So talking about the lost treasure, and one of the first things that I saw that was mentioned in here, and this was one of the things that kind of brought me to a foreboding tale, but you know, the concept of the skull and the other bones being found and moved around and the whole bed, you know, that reminds me a lot of like a memento mori, which goes all the way back to ancient Rome, a reminder of mortality. Is that utilized in Freemasonry? Yeah, that is utilized in some jurisdictions, not all. And with the different rites within Freemasonry, that is surely utilized. And it's probably one of the most popular through pop culture because of movies that have nothing to do with masonry, but like the skull and bones or things like that. People kind of start getting this idea that it's solely a Masonic symbol. But since we kind of know that Masonic symbolism and its rituals were still developing well into the 1700s, as well as developing into the 1800s, it did not come from Freemasonry, if that makes sense. So, you know, it is something that has been around a great deal. So that kind of made me think, okay, think about your mortality, impending doom, you know, um, whenever there's something discovered, in, even in the Indiana Jones movie, you know, he walks around the corner and then there's a skeleton there, you know? So sure. moving forward from that, the grave depth, I think he was trying to make an allusion to a calling out of a grave in Freemasonry. And the thing that I did was I went, well, you know, I'd really like to look into the concept of graves. Where did this come from? Because what a lot of people also don't know is that the rituals of the craft, which are the first three degrees. So when you join a lodge in most areas of the world that are somewhat anglicized, their Freemasonry came from England, Scotland, and Ireland. They're all close with little differences, but there's certain things that are all normal. And why I say that is because Another thing people get caught on is this idea of 33rd degree Masons. Well, that is within a body called the Scottish Rite. So you could become a Mason, be initiated as an entered apprentice, passed to the degree of fellow craft, and raised to the degree of master Mason and never do anything else. That is it. You belong to a lodge. That's your entire Masonic experience. However, there are these other bodies 
which carry on the allegory a bit further or create new allegory altogether. And the 33rds and things like that that we see on the TV or people call out, that's from an organization, the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite. And that is something you can join after you're a Master Mason, but it does not make you a higher ranking Mason than a Master Mason, if that makes sense. Imagine the pinnacle is Master Mason, then everything is linear with it. It's just whether you want to have that Masonic experience or not. So with the degrees in the lodge being based around the Old Testament time period, I thought, well, you know, I really want to look into grave practices and take a look and see what I can find out about it. Well, I came across a few sources that all seem to agree with each other, which doesn't necessarily mean it's correct, but they were saying the concept of digging a grave six feet deep, number one, came about during the 1600s in a law that was enacted to bury plague victims. So it appears that that concept does not necessarily lend itself to the old world. And what I mean by that is the biblical time period, so to speak. And, you know, I didn't really see anything symbolic about this, to be honest with you. Six feet square and nearly as many feet deep. It didn't really ring to me. And from Freemasonry, I'm happy to say that this term, six feet square and nearly as many feet deep, I've never come across that being anything being described as such. Anything else on the grave? I'm not really seeing anything there. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of it. I mean, the connection was the, you know, the stone and the lifting of the stone. And then also that the location of the grave was in the southwestern corner of John Bell's property and that he was connecting some symbolism there as well. Okay, so the lifting of the stone, and this is like where I kind of start having like an issue with it. I mean, yeah, masonry and stones. I personally don't see anything Masonic about lifting a stone and finding a grave. To my knowledge, there's just nothing I could really pull from on that. I hate to kind of be a dud on this one, but it feels very much like, hey, well, he said a stone, and then he said something about the depth of a grave. This has to be Masonic. Well, it seems to me that this person was dug in a grave, six feet square or whatnot, pardon me, the treasure. The treasure was put into a grave or a hole, six feet square and nearly as many feet deep. Well, okay. I just don't really see anything there. And then needing to lift a stone off of it. Well, I've been to many places and I'm going back to like a grave idea. And like, I've been to the graveyards in which I'm sure you've seen or whatnot, where there really is not a headstone, but it's laid flat on the ground. Does that seem familiar to you? It's, it's almost yeah, like, absolutely. it looks almost like the length of a coffin yes. and then it would have the information chiseled on that flat stone. So yeah, I don't really see anything there. It just seems to me more like he sees stone He sees reference to a grave, and then we can go down further to kind of tie that back into some things that he's talking about. But yeah, nothing Masonic on that. Okay. Here's just little things that I'll pick out. So it says, Mystic Arthur Edward Waite in his authoritative, a new encyclopedia of Freemasonry. So this book is not authoritative. What it is, is that everybody owns a copy of this book. It sits, it collects dust, and it's not a good place for actual information. Brother Waite was a mystic. Brother Waite was involved in a lot of different things during the 1800s, but he was extremely fantastical with what he personally believed about masonry and really not a lot of Masonic scholars. In fact, I would say all Masonic scholars would know you read Wait for a good time and to get some information about maybe some weird kind of side degrees or high degrees that he might've had a couple like little nuggets of information about, but it's not authoritative. So right there, unfortunately, from my perspective, as I'm questioning 
the source material that he is utilizing. And I made a um, point, but that's just me. Okay. And I, I own a very vast Masonic library and I do own this book. And it's kind of just one of those ones that you pick up occasionally when you kind of want to see what he was thinking, but it really doesn't have anything to do with authoritative information. Moving down among its deepest spiritual concerns, masonry focuses on the mystery of death, whereby the mason is taught how to die. Well, that little piece of line is something that I recognize from a lecture from a different country, but it's being taken out of context. And the thing that masonry teaches you how to do is how to live. It teaches you about virtues that make your life much more meaningful. It builds character. And then when you distill those virtues and you start acting on them, it makes the world around you a better place. And really, if we want to talk about death, of course, there is contemplation upon mortality, but it's not teaching you how to die in a way where I'm sure most people would read this and go, oh, do I need to do like a magical ritual right before? Does there need to be something special happening? No, what we're talking about here is learning how to live so that your death is actually a loss to the people around you and to society because of all the good things that you did while you were here. How did you spend your time? That is the question. So I kind of have a little bit of an issue there. Then we move down a little bit and he brings up Hiram, the master mason, the architect of Solomon's temple. Well, in the book of Kings, there is mention of a Hiram and that is a part of the allegory within Freemasonry is this concept of Hiram Abiff an architect sent from Tyre at the request of King Solomon to come be the architect on the temple. Something that is very interesting about that, though, is not even in every country do they prescribe to the Hiramic legend. Sometimes they use a different person named Adoniram. So the thing is, is that another concept of Freemasonry for people to understand is that I think there's this idea that every single place in the world, all the Masons are identical. Their rituals are identical. Their symbolism is identical. Everything they do is identical. There's nothing further from the truth. As I was saying, in most anglicized countries, you'll find masonry being pretty much the same, except for some differences in different jurisdictions. But then if you go to places like Germany or South and Central America that work the Scottish Rite degrees from the first degree all the way out, different places, the symbolism, the teachings will be different. There are similarities, but not always. So with that being said, is that if a Mason is well informed on the ritual and practices of other countries, other jurisdictions, he can speak to Masonic symbolism widely. But if you were to talk to a Mason today that only knows what he has experienced in his lodge, he could act like that's what everybody does. Well, that's just not true. Going down a little bit further with the idea of the cube, speaking of a symbol of truth. Well, The cube, the perfect stone, not even in Freemasonry, but in alchemy, in different forms of people that were inspired by the Rosicrucian manifestos, the cube became a symbol of perfection. In some places, it allegorically represented Christ. It represented this transcendence, just like an alchemy, from base material to perfection, to absolute spiritual material. But with that being said, if he's trying to allude to a cube as being tied into this whole It just seems to me that he's finding things that he's trying to tie back to masonry, but there is no clarity in any of it. Okay. Because Freemasonry to me is a system where you receive a ceremony, a degree, then there is a concise 
set of circumstances, a concise set of teachings, and you walk out of it with an impactful experience and a lot of questions, but also a great deal of clarity. This to me would seem as if Mr. Nichols, and this is solely my opinion, saw things that he thought were odd, then was kind of like, well, how can we make sense of this? Well, we can talk about masonry because I'm seeing things that are kind of mentioned in masonry, but they're also mentioned everywhere else. They're mentioned in the Bible. They're mentioned in other stories. They're mentioned. So I wouldn't see there's anything unique at this point. The concept of taking one shoe off, that is an ancient Jewish practice. And one of the first places you can read about it is actually in the book of Ruth, because it's actually for attesting or certifying. So it was a practice of taking off a shoe and handing it, taking off your sandal and handing it to the person you were certifying or attesting to. It was like a bond in a sense. So when I was listening to this part of the story and the guy's trying to walk and his shoes are like flying off his feet, it has nothing to do with Masonic practices, nor does it appear to tie into ancient biblical practices. Do you recognize some other kind of symbolism in that part of the allegory? Do you mean in the story that we're talking about the Bell Witch? Yeah, in the Bell Witch specifically. You know, and I mean, of course, I'm just going to go off of what I think, and I'm not basing this on anything much, but to me kind of reminds me almost like you're not going to be buried with your shoes on, bud. It kind of just reminds me of something terrifying, because if you could think about it, and if you were walking and all of a sudden your shoes were literally being like ripped off your feet in mid-walk, and I believe in the story, there he started hearing really scary music, it sounded like. is, is That's what he said, like music coming from like the sky. Singing. To me, it's almost like ominous witnessing like your own funeral service or something to that effect. Like it just had this vibe where to me, it was almost like he was being prepared for something and it was not going to be anything good. That's sort of what I walked away with it on that. Let's say that this particular skeptical viewpoint of the entire story of the Bell Witch and of Ingram's publication of it, the question would be to what end? What would be the goal of bearing wow. the symbolism in this book? And especially for someone who seemingly is just a journalist trying to, yeah. not casting aspersions on the profession of journalism, but sure. I'm just saying, just somebody trying to sell a story, why would you go to the trouble to bury all this information in there? If, in fact, it was representative of what you don't feel like it is anyway, what would be the goal of that? Yeah, I have no clue. And, and that's why I really am firm that Mr. Nichols is really, I don't know if he saw something and then he kind of went, oh, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. Then he started pulling out books and I looked at the books that he referenced and everybody owns Mackey's History, Mackey's Encyclopedia, Mackey's Dictionary, Mackey's Lexicon. But Mackey even today would not be considered a phenomenal source for information. And then the other book, Lester's Look to the East, was what would be called a monitor, which would be standardized ritual for a certain jurisdiction and or a expose. Well, one thing that caught my eye was when he was talking about the Southwest corner, I was like, and to me being a Mason, all this stuff is second nature. And I was like, where is he getting this information? So I went online because I have a copy of Lester's Look to the East. I just cannot find it right now, but I actually have one. And I just did the search and I did Southwest. Well, let's put it this way. It holds no consequence of anything in the ceremony beyond giving direction of walking around a lodge room. Because it threw me because I was like, Southwest, Southwest. And I kept trying to rattle my mind to think, but it's really just about, and this is not giving away anything. It's about what's called perambulation, which is where one of the officers in the candidate walks around the lodge room 
it's just walking around. And then it just says the deacon and the candidate will go from the um, northeast down to the southwest, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's really direction. So he found in the ritual something that matched to something said in the story, then said, oh, well, this has to be Masonic. Well, all that it was saying was that somebody walks from here to there. It's literally just directions very, very quickly. And it holds no weight of finding a treasure or anything like that. It's just sure. the perambulation. It's literally walking around a lodge room and just saying they will walk from that corner to this corner to that corner to this corner and then do it again. So it was just finding a, the words and then those words happen to be in the story. Then now it's Masonic because in a Masonic book, I found those words. So you can kind of see where I'm going with that is that it's really, in my opinion, fishing to make a connection. Right. What Nickel says is that the southwest corner is one of the four stations that the blindfolded initiate is ritualistically conducted to in the second or fellow craft degree in a search for light being opposite to the starting and ending point. So let's put it this way, is that if a candidate is being led around a lodge room, he's not just in the southwest corner. Okay. He's being led around the room, but if you make directional points in the room, then yeah, he does get past there, but that still would have nothing to do with what Mr. Nichols is trying to allude to. It's easy for me to explain and hard for me to explain, but it would be like if me and you spent a few hours together and then we ended up walking to one corner of the room, talking for a few minutes, moved over closer to the bar, grabbed something, stayed over there. That point in time does not reflect upon any symbolic or deep truths. You are walking to it and you're walking away from it. Okay. And then you're moving back down around. So honestly, I mean, without going into Masonic ceremony, what I can promise you is that, yeah, at some point, somebody has walked on that spot, then turns and keeps walking. It's not specifically a destination with any specific connotation is what you're saying. No, no oh, absolutely not. Okay. And, you know, I really did try to go, well, how am I not thinking about anything particularly special happening at that moment? You know, and there's just nothing. I went back through my stuff and I definitely searched through Lester's to see if it might have been. Sometimes there's exposés out there, and this has been going on since the early 1700s, that are um, full of misinformation. They're just full of them. And the problem is people grab these exposés because they go, oh, this is great. I can finally learn what's going on in Masonic Lodge. And then when you read it, you go, what? And typically it's because it's word of mouth, word of mouth, word of mouth, word of mouth, till it gets to the eighth guy who's going to write it. He's never been in a lodge room sometimes. And then he just kind of starts winging it. So I looked to see if Lester's was of that accord and it wasn't. It just said that candidate will be taken down the Southwest and then head out this way and then head back up and head over. And it's just perambulation. So the thing is, is that, and that's really as far as I'll go on that, but perambulation is important, but that point is not of relevance. It's a corner in a room. You have to go down to this point so you can hang a right and head to the next corner. Same thing over and over again. So yeah, I would say that I'm just a little bit confused as to why he found that particular spot of importance when it is not, and this is coming from a Mason who's a past master of initiated past and raised brothers, been around the lodge now for quite a while. And there's nothing special that would allude to a treasure in the southwest corner. To be clear, you have a full understanding of these initiation procedures, and you've made it clear to yeah. me before we even spoke that there's things that you're not at liberty to discuss and you're not going to, and which I respect tremendously. But to make a further point for our listeners, if you felt there was something significant, even if you weren't free to discuss it about this particular corner, mm -hmm. would you indicate that? 
Yeah, I would have no problem indicating it. I would probably just say, yeah, I can understand how he would believe this would tie back to a Masonic ceremony. So that might be as far as I could go. Sure. And I would just respectfully leave it at that. But the thing is, is that I really did go through this and beyond seeing things that are not just found in Freemasonry, but are also found in the Bible, that are also found in pretty much a lot of different institutions, I didn't see anything that I thought was of a great nature. To me, kind of like the situation with the shoes, that would be like me saying, well, hold on, Scott probably takes off his shoes before he goes to bed. I do. So are, are, are we exactly? So is this reflective of Scott's ritual for going to sleep? Because to me, it holds the same kind of value because it's like, well, no, Mike does the same thing. I'm sure Forrest, everybody else in the world, pretty much, depending on your situation, takes off your shoes before you go to bed. But that doesn't make that practice Masonic, nor does this man's shoes basically from like how I kind of understood it, almost being like pulled off his feet while he's walking. Yes. Um, nothing of that accord. I can tell you this right now. You're not going to be walking anywhere and having your shoes ripped off. Sure. That is not going to happen. So the thing is right there, boom, not good. I saw that he was trying to talk about the ancient Jewish practice of taking one sandal off and giving it as a form of attestation or certifying. And then also concepts of Moses and in spiritual places still to this day, removing your shoes in quite a few still maintain this practice, removing your shoes because it's a sanctified location. And, you know, it's a form of respect to deity and a form of respect to the environment that you're in. Once again, you know, though, um, just not seeing a lot of anything here. And I'd really be curious why he picked the Masons to tie these into because there are many institutions, but not just institutions. It, there's many situations that you could really reach and try to make connections with in some of the purported symbolism that he called out. Mike, I cannot thank you enough for your time this evening. Thank you so much for looking into this on very short notice and coming back to us with such a well-informed response to our questions about this. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Always happy to help. I know that I have a tendency to ramble because I'm looking at things while we are talking, but I'm, I'm glad to always be a service. Well, that was fascinating because, again, if you're not a Mason, and I don't believe that Joe is, it's one of those things where you got some information from somewhere. Yeah, and, and neither are we, by the way. I was in the Acacia fraternity in college. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. Uh, you ju- do. Just for uh, two years, but you're one for life, and it is a junior organization of the Masons, and they have their own rites and rituals and stuff, and uh, you know a lot of community service and things like that. Nothing that mysterious. But you do study some of this, and I can say that some of that fits. And some of it is not, like I said, it's a lot of mystery put towards something that you're not a member of and don't really understand. So it was great seeing a viewpoint of somebody who really knows this stuff. By the way, we did want to point out that part of what we cut from this original interview was Mike did a really cool about 15 or 20-minute explanation of exactly what Freemasonry is and how it started and how it evolved into what it is today. And it's a very concise explanation of how it works and why things came to be the way they are. And our patrons who are at the $5 level and above on patreon.com will be able to listen to that full interview with Mike. We're going to be posting it concurrently with this episode. So you can go there if you want to get that extra bit of information and the full-length interview with him, just as we have also the full-length interview with Park Ranger David Britton there. Yeah, and and the reason that Mike did that is to kind of clear up a lot of misconceptions and especially tamp down the conspiracy, like, you guys are out to run the world. Yeah. 
No, it just happens to be a lot of influential people have been Masons throughout history. So anyway, he gives you the background to kind of clear that up. And also he gets the standard questions like, are you a Shriner? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. There's a couple of things about Mike's interview that I did want to go over again. And I also wanted to stress that Joe Nickel, in his article where he was analyzing the Bell Witch story and the idea that M.V. Ingram and Richard Williams Bell were the same person and that pretty much one person fabricated this entire thing, which there's a lot of that that I'm on board with Joe about. There's a lot of it that I am. Like I said, some cases you can say that I don't believe any of that or that's kind of far-fetched to me. But here it's like these are good investigative points. And that's why we really wanted to highlight this article because it's like, well, that's an interesting point. The language sounds the same. He did a very thorough comparison. Well, and I myself noticed stuff even before I read Joe's piece. And I also want to say, before we forget to say it, Joe was not making declarative statements about the Masonic symbolism in Ingram's book. Absolutely. He was saying, it seems like, and if you look at it this way, and he found a through line, which I do think bears a little bit of evidence of confirmation bias once he decided that there may be a Masonic overtone to it. But he never said, this was Masons. And that's the kind of thing that we're not on board with any more than we're saying this was definitely how this went down. The legend (laughs) is 100% accurate. That's not what we're going to do either. And when we look to the skeptical arguments that we want to bring into the big picture, we look for people who aren't declaring that they've got it all figured out the other way either because – in a case like this that's so old and that has uh, very little evidence, I don't think either side's going to figure it out definitively. No, there's nothing to really point to, but there's several things going on here. So as you heard in the interview and what our little introduction hopefully pointed out with Joe's points is that there's several ideas that Joe's putting forward here. One is, I think, a pretty solid case with the language being suspiciously similar to the two accounts, Ingram's and Bell's. So it makes you wonder, like, it's not definitive to me, but you think about it because is Ingram taking some of Bell's language because it's an an earlier document or did he write the whole thing or is there some kind of um, combining one document's bleeding into the other and so words like detective that may have been anachronistic for the mid-19th century are now being used and known in 1894 and that's where Ingram's getting them. And is he maybe taking some liberties or just forgetting or just embellishing or just filling in the gap? So you don't know, but it does raise some interesting and valid questions, I believe. Joe Nickel points to. And so this other area where Joe is uh, raising some criticisms or finding some unusual patterns is all the Freemasonry lore and the imagery and the, and the allegories. And you wonder, I do mostly, What's the point of that? Well, and I'm pretty well satisfied from what Mike said that there's probably not a connection there. But what I did think was fascinating that Mike said was how a lot of the stories seemed like an allegorical representation of preparing for death when it came to John Bell. So that's really interesting to me too. You know, the taking off of the shoes, the digging of the for the treasure is a grave. There's a whole lot of other symbolism there that you can find as well. But again, maybe that's me looking at that and being like, oh, it's a death allegory. Oh, it's a Mason allegory, right. or it's whatever you want it to be, you know? So yeah. <laughs> it's hard to say what it is or it isn't. And then you get into the whole thing. It was like, is it so crazy because it's all true? Or is yeah. it so crazy because every stitch of it's made up? I don't know. Right. I don't know. <laughs> right. I usually kind of believe there's a blend, is that there's some veins of truth. 
there's some things uh, stuck onto that, and then you get this uh, great big story, which, again, we love the story part of it. We consider ourselves entertainers and storytellers to deflect the flack uh, from real science, and you guys don't know what you're talking about. Well, yeah. we're presenting stuff to you. But in the question of all this Masonic imagery that's showing up in the account, yeah, I go, I go back to, well, if Ingram is making that up, is he borrowing that because it's good story fodder? It's like, ooh, here's some symbology and imagery, and it's classic, and it's ancient, and it'll fit in with this, and I need, I need to sell some copies. This will really give it the kicker. Is he trying to embed this piece with masonic lord imagery is is he recruiting for the masons is he doing it to like that's that one theory of like putting in ancient knowledge into things into common things well and, and that's something mike talked about that i actually wound up cutting for time from the main show here as you can tell by yeah. how long it's going it is available in the full interview at patreon but uh he talked about how that kind of stuff is present in other books which we asked him about specifically ones that rudyard kipling had written yeah including the man who would be king which is force and i's favorite movie one of them sure uh, yeah one of our favorite yeah. I, I would say when i say it's our favorite movie i think if you asked us both what a movie was that we both agreed was really great <laughs> that would be it <laughs> yeah. and then the other book was the jungle book which yeah. he went into specific details about how there's all kinds of Masonic messages hidden in those books. But Rudyard was a member of a lodge in Lahore where he was, I think, the master. And he was clearly, if you see the movie, The Man Who Would Be King, I have not read the book. I would love to read it. But if you see the movie, it's all baked into the movie too. It's really fascinating stuff that he's clearly putting in there for entertainment and allegorical reasons, but also just for because of the mystery of it is intriguing. Right. So the question you have to ask yourself is, was Ingram doing that in the story of the Bell Witch? And if he was, it seemed pretty clumsy, you know? <laughs> well, yes, he's not on the level of, of Rudyard Kipling, of course. The difference I see mainly is that uh, Mike had, had pointed out that the Jungle Book, Mowgli, is being accepted into kind of a lodge, of jungle animals, and yes. he's got to go through initiation and prove his worth, and they will teach him the secrets of survival in the jungle and protect him, and that's the allegory there. That was but, a scene like that in Finding Nemo, too, in the fish tank at the doctor's well, office. Exactly. These are the classic themes throughout history and of humankind, of aspiring to better yourself, being accepted, and living the right life, and not so much preparing for death but preparing for life, to lead a decent life with great fellowship and getting along with the people uh, who have the same ideals of higher morality. Of, Which uh, is your of bond. Filth. Yes. It's not even necessarily anymore your profession. Your bond is your morality and your principles. And in fact, it behooves the organization to have people from all different professions. Right. And that's what we've said before, is that there's only one stipulation. You can be of any faith, of any uh, skin color, any background. You just have to believe in a higher power. So let's start there. It's not that secretive. And once you get in there and you prove that you're serious about it and you want to learn, then you start to learn and become initiated and get indoctrinated into the lore. Now, here's my point about the difference. Kipling is writing fiction and great stories for children and adults. Ingram's account is supposed to be documentarian. It's supposed to be more like journalism in that here I'm relaying the story because he's telling you that here's what went on. Not that I'm spinning a yarn out of my head and I've just stuck in some Masonic things. So again, to me, it's like, well, maybe you needed some good angles here, but if you're a decent newspaper, man, you can make that stuff up. You don't need to resort to Masonic allegory. So the question still remains for me. Now, I think Joe would say that, well, that just points to him 
being the author of something fictional that he's sticking these things in to kind of juice it up there. But I still wonder why. All right, so as we come around to wrapping this show up, believe it or not, after all this time, we hope you're enjoying your October with us, we're going to talk a little bit about our theories, and not too long, don't worry, and then we're going to take you out of the <laughs> Bell Witch because yeah. there's not a whole lot left to say about her. We've uh, <laughs> we've wrung it dry, or if you're a videographer, you call it spraying the room. Yeah. You've, you've captured every possible image in the location. Continuing the theories, I'm going to talk a little bit about one of the bigger sort of subversive theories was the idea that Betsy Bell was being abused somehow. Right. And I find this theory completely plausible. There was an interesting piece that Marissa dug up in the Astonishing Research Corps that explains why this might be the case here. And when you first think about conveying abuse and you think about even how they do it today, and hopefully it's not something you've ever had to deal with or had a loved one had to deal with, especially children, you know it's almost a cliche now. They take you into the room and the kid has the little doll and where did this happen, X, Y, and Z happen? Yeah. And it's horrible, but the reason they're doing that is because you have to dissociate to convey the details because it's so hard to talk about it directly. That's exactly what this one dissertation is saying that was written by a University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill student, Ariel Gratch. It's called Haunting Stories of Abuse, Revealing Ghosts Through Critical Performance Ethnography, UNC Chapel Hill, Ann Arbor, 2008. That must be the publisher. So I just want to read this quote from this dissertation. I realized that the story of the Bell Witch allowed me to examine an explicit story of haunting. In the story of the Bell Witch, a spirit needs to be conjured to tell the story. The spirit manifests for multiple reasons and for multiple people. Most importantly, however, the spirit exists to allow Betsy's story to be told. Stories of intimate abuse are difficult to understand, particularly because of the incredibly complex relationship between the perpetrator of abuse and the person who is abused. In this paper, I argue that certain ghosts are conjured, which both allow and inhibit stories of abuse to be told and heard. In this paper, I use the words witch, spirit, and ghost interchangeably. They all serve a similar purpose as a trope of haunting. As a trace of the past, as a tool for explaining and making sense out of the incommunicable and nonsensical, I argue that it is easier to believe and to understand a supernatural agent causing harm than it is to believe a family member or loved one causing harm. I think that's a super fascinating viewpoint right there, and it definitely quantifies in a far better way than I could have my own thoughts on the possibility of some of the origins of this story and the idea that Betsy was possibly being abused by John Bell Sr. or someone else in the family. Right. Then it brings up questions for me is that then is the Bell Witch story an allegory to portray the abuse? And by whom? Not the abuse by whom? Probably John Bell because he's the one who's killed for his crimes, if that's well, part of the story. But who is coming up with this story? Is it Ingram? Is it partly the Johnston line? Or is it coming down from Richard Williams Bell? Well, you know, there was a story that we don't have a lot of details on, but it came up in the research. I cannot remember where I came across it or somebody in the Astonishing Research Corps came across it. But it suggested that John Bell was murdered by a slave who knew that Betsy was being abused by another member of the family and knew that John Bell Sr. knew it and he was doing nothing about it. Mm -hmm. 
Allegedly. I need to use the word allegedly here. Yeah, um, we, I right. did look are... up today. I did look it up. There is no such thing as slander or libel for people that are deceased. But uh, <laughs> we don't have a whole lot of information here. We're just speculating. And no. I want to be really clear about that before. I'm not trying to cast aspersions on this family obviously has many living descendants. And Absolutely. Just You're... making blind speculation yeah. of the origin of a legend here. Right. right. And that's why I was hesitant to jump to that with the case of Annalisa Michel, is that yes. these people are still living and you're accusing of the most horrible crimes. Their ancestors in, yeah, exactly. in this case. And But, you know, when it comes down to my personal theory yeah. on the possibilities for this story, and I don't have one nailed down any more than any skeptical person should be able to say, this absolutely is not what happened. This is all hoaxed or whatever. Yeah. I'm, we just never like the certainty of people coming out and saying, this is what happened. Yeah. Because hopefully you've never heard that from us. Yeah. We'll never say that this is absolutely what happened. We'll say stuff is unlikely, or we believe this. I did more say than I that. was pretty sure that Amelia died on Saipan. <laughs> that's the only time oh, I close, felt yeah. real good about something in all right. our shows. Uh, I feel this yeah, way, but yeah. it's based entirely on anecdotal evidence, so you can't yeah. say it definitively. And that's kind of what Brian Dunning's, I, I believe, his point of view in this, in that it's so hard and maybe not even worth it to analyze this on the basis of paranormal events because you don't have any solid record of it. And everything that you do, he can bring into question for its veracity and authenticity. So... His point of view was like, I don't know, this is so out there that you're never going to get good footing on this, so why bother? I guess for me, the thing that makes sense in my Dateline Keith Morrison head is uh, that John Bell was up to something that wasn't good. And there's a lot of possibilities for what that not good thing could have been. Yeah. It could have simply been a religious argument. If you listen to what David Britton said, a difference between perceptions between the Baptists and the Methodists, and one part of the family going one way, the other part being related to his excommunication. The fact that Josiah Fort had that conflict blacked out of the church minutes, what was that about? Could that have been an embarrassing case of physical abuse of someone else? or some other kind of cover-up. It's literally a cover-up. They put India ink and covered up whatever happened. Yeah, whatever the argument was about. Whatever that argument was about. Or do you go back to situations with Kate Batts? Or do you go back to the rumor, and it's just a rumor, that he killed an overseer at his farm in North Carolina? Right. All of these things could be connected. Or maybe he was allowing some kind of abuse to happen to his children, or maybe he was perpetrating abuse to his children. Any of these cases could be true. But what I'm saying is, like, I think there's some seed of something there, and I think he was murdered, and that explains the poison that was brought and blamed on the Bell Witch, that they found the vial, and I didn't, the Bell Witch confessed to giving it to him, because how do you arrest a spirit? You can't. <laughs> how yeah. do you hold this thing accountable? Right. So they say that the witch gave the poison, he dies, and then this story is made up to protect whoever killed him because they felt that his death was justified. And it was more important to protect the future of whoever perpetrated the murder than it was to solve the crime of the murder because the murder was, in fact, covering up another crime that was much worse. So that is a little bit of my theory. And then I think what happened, possibly, is that the story took on a life of its own. It became mythical and allegorical. And then we have this journalist who comes along. He's interested in the story. It's a famous story. He's a journalist. He makes money selling words. He takes all this history that was 
essentially made to be a cover-up and bakes it into this big thing and manages to sell a fair amount of books on it. And the family doesn't push back on it because if they do, they might reveal that something much worse happened than a spirit becoming obsessed with murdering this man. And I think that the complex mythology comes out of Ingram's development of the idea into a story, and I think he got to work in a lot of his own messages and messages from the time period and messages that were appropriate for the late 1800s and make it all into something that would sell books. Well. <laughs> I think those are all possibilities. Yeah. It's just looking at the big picture. That's the crazy thing about us doing this. We come in yeah. here. I knew absolutely next to nothing. I actually knew nothing about this story a month ago. Zip. I didn't even know what part of the United States it had taken place in. Right. I didn't know it was 40 yeah. miles from Kelly Hopkinsville. Yeah, that was and a so, surprise. like, yeah. to suck all this information in and just live it and breathe it like we've been doing, it's 1.30 in the morning. We're finishing this part now. We were here until midnight last night doing the same thing for the two halves of part two of this show. We have been fully immersed in it. And on the backside of it, as we're about to walk away from it, and I'm going to close all these tabs and forget all of this in about three weeks. <laughs> it's like yeah. I said, we're temporary experts. I'm walking away from it. The feeling that I have is essentially what I just said. I feel like that is an amorphous possibility, but I don't really know. There's a lot of things you can't explain. Well, that would be your second half of the whole Dateline program. Well, and then this is the rest of the story. <laughs> there was also Paul Harvey on there. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure, that could be a feasible through line of what happened because you're adding some real life elements with a layer of, not the Scooby-Doo thing, but a layer of real possible physical real world things and a covered over a thin veil of the, the paranormal to give it some spookiness, and it's just like you can't arrest a ghost. But for me, there's too many elements that are paranormal in aspect and real world, and I think it's a lot of speculation. If you're looking at me, like, now's the time for me to, to chime in on my thoughts. If you're trying to cherry-pick stuff and you look at the rules, it may be the only time that some kind of demonic entity like this has directly murdered somebody or have claimed to, like, yes, I gave him the poison. Like, would you just drop it into his gruel, or what What happened there? See, that's another X mark <laughs> against it. It broke one of your rules. No. Again, I'm, there's no certainty to my rules. I'm just, they're not my rules. In my mind, they're, they are. They're not my rules. Don't attribute those to me. Yeah. I'm just noticing patterns, and maybe that does not fit the pattern, but you don't know what this thing is. It's not a witch, as we know medieval witches and uh, sorcery and that kind of stuff as we know today. I'm coming to some interesting ideas here, possibly. That's a weird thing, but I, who knows? You can't control these things, and, and a lot of people don't even believe in this stuff. So then you're taking it at face value, like, okay, well, then the abuse happens. But who's making up the story? Is it Ingram later on? It would be a weird thing for the family to do then of, like, why does Betsy have bruises? And the other kid's like, well, there's a spirit slapping us around. Then what about the accounts of the other people? Again, the other family that has to join in on that. The Johnstons, who also claim like, no, no, I went over there that evening and it happened to me. That story has been told through our family line ever since. Five, six generations of people. Again, that fits into my theory in that the children are the angelic beings in this story that need to be protected. And if the evil was John Bell Sr. or was related somehow to that, 
then the entire community works to cover up the murder of the person that was perpetrating this evil against the children. Possibly, but that's a lot of speculation. And so I couldn't agree more. You're making your own Ingram book now. Yes, you, I am. You know you're right. You're that right. That is another version of an Ingram book. It's like, well, this is what happened, possibly. You're right. There was a lot of abuse, and the whole town was in on it. So it's murder on it's the- It's a great uh, movie. This is a great movie. Well, it's called Murder on the Orient Express, yeah. except it's happening in Adams, Tennessee. That's yeah. what's happening is that everyone's <laughs> chipping in to right or wrong, and they're all doing a little something wrong in the process. That's not a spoiler. You should have read the darn book years ago. It's all right. They just remade it. But getting back to, uh, that's one interesting rule is that you're having some kind of entity have a hand in this, literally. But I can't speculate on that either. I don't know what's going on. I'll never tell you, like, it's a ball of demons. But if you're going to go there, it sounds like a ball of demons wrapped up as Kate. And certainly there's four names, which are very interesting and inventive. But what is this thing? Okay, then you're going down the road of, it's the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 5, verse 9. For Jesus had already declared, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? Jesus asked. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. That's the verse in that you have a ball of something, of bad demons. In this case, they're not all bad, but it's like a multiple personality kind of demon where it's just like, uh, I want to help the kids. Like, I want to slap this guy. It's all over the place, so it's kind of crazy. But none of this makes sense. There's no, like I said, there's no rules like, well, how, how does anybody know, really? I mean, you may be a demonologist and you can see patterns. Like we said, this fits those patterns. The trickster element, intelligence, wanting to mess with us, predicting the future, all those kind of things. Yeah, that ties in with that. And it's also often mentioned that this ties in with the idea of the jinn, the D-J-I-N-N or J-I-N-N, which is where we get the term genie. And that is a Middle Eastern demonic spirit that you don't want to mess with. It's not a Disney fun character that gives you wishes. So, and then we had somebody write in to us recently saying that you guys mentioned Mark 5, 9 before, and they go to a Christian college. And the attitude is that that's kind of more of a metaphor and that the pigs are the Roman soldiers and this and that. And it's like, well, are you saying that none of it's true now? Nothing in the, in the New Testament is true. Or is it a combination? Is it based on a real thing that also has some allegory and some teaching moments to it? Who knows? Again, everybody's got an opinion. What's interesting I found that comes up with Joe Nichols' argument is that he was saying, it's like, if there is any real poltergeist activity, then it's possibly the poltergeist faking syndrome that is exhibited a lot of times with young girls. Yes. Around that time of puberty, your emotions are, are way up and there's a lot of energy. None of it's, of course, been proven in a lab, but that has been seen to be a well, case and it's a theory. So here you have maybe somebody who is being abused who's an 11-year-old girl. We don't know in the family, but a lot of emotional turmoil and stuff is happening. Right. That would be the spontaneous psychokinesis, I think, or something like that, which I know that uh, Dr. Barry Taft talks about a good deal. And he's somebody that we had explored some of his research relating to the case of the entity, which is something that we're looking at doing next year. That's an interesting thing because you're saying it's both. There's abuse and something going on as a result of the abuse that defies rational explanation. We don't know. This is a big uh, bouillabaisse of folklore, possibly real things happening, possibly really strange paranormal things happening, mixed in with ideas of witchcraft. This is my murder on the Orient Express. This whole story has got so much going on. 
the political, religious, socioeconomic turmoil of the time. There's possibly straight paranormal stuff where it's just real. It's like voices disembodied. It would be certainly one of the best cases I've ever heard of, of that happening and the most powerful, vibrant, robust kind of hauntings. So that's remarkable in that sense. I can't make a decision of, of what's going on. It's not even one that's kind of fun to want to believe in, just for yucks, for fun, because it's kind of serious, and you're dealing with the real family stories here that they believed in, and I don't want to mess with that. But again, there's so many different ideas of real-world stuff like possible abuse, frontier living, PTSD from the War of 1812. There's a hundred different factors here. So here's just a couple of interesting points that we had a listener who's kind of a fan right into us, who also has studied Wicca and neo-paganism and the history of witchcraft. And uh, one, they were talking about the general idea is the bell witch, does that have anything to do with real witchcraft? And one, they were saying like, well, certainly nothing with Wicca. And two, yes, all the things that we've been saying before, of basically like that's the product of that time after the Salem witch trials and just people's idea of like anything kind of weird like that, it's witchcraft, it's sorcery. And so maybe that it is covering for abuse. There's something bad going on there. John is sick. He died in two days. He was muttering and his face is contorted. That's got to be witchcraft. As this person pointed out, more like sorcery where it's like very base and, and immoral rather than like white witchery, I guess. And then here's another idea that they just sent in today, which is interesting. And I'll just kind of read the email here. I don't know if anyone has pointed this out to you guys, but you may find the concept of the egregore interesting. And the definition here, it's on Wikipedia, we'll have a link. A thought form or collective group mind, an autonomous psychic entity made up of and influencing the thoughts of a group of people. And then their statement after that was, uh, it's also gained traction in some modern witchcraft practices as an entity that the creator makes and then feeds, quote-unquote, energetically to be able to do specific tasks, much like the golem, but without a physical body. There is also some discussion about what happens after the death of the creator, or if the egregore is accidentally overfed. It's thought that they don't get fat, they will either keep doing their thing or gain a degree of sentience slash independence, which means they could run amok. We're back to the Tolpa thing of like some kind of who knows, created thought form, and it could be unwilling, but suddenly now this thing is tormenting a group of people that are all sharing this, this psychic energy. So that's an interesting aspect I had not really heard of. So what happened in the past, we'll never know. I think you're right about that. There's so many different factors, so many interesting things, and, and possibly just stuff that's folkloric, and Southern folkloric specifically with Tennessee. But I always look to what's happening now with that. So if you believe that the place, the land itself, the terra, has got some kind of spiritual mojo, it's a cross-section, it's a crossroads of some kind of activity. Not saying that is, not saying I always believe in that. A lot of people have said that, though. So you wonder, like, what's going on today? Is there anything recent that's happened? Now, the original homesteads are no longer there, but some of the Native American burial mounds are and we still have the witch cave. And what's happened there, because that's still around and that has some burial plots inside of it. Take the example of journalist David Gerard and photographer Bill Wilson, who in October of 1986 set out for their employer, the Tennessean newspaper out of Nashville, to spend the night in the Bell Witch Cave. The article on this event is front page of the October 27th issue of the paper that year. The cave at the time belonged to, and may still, the Eden family. 
W.M. Eden Sr. was 67 back in 1986 and farmed soybeans and tobacco at the time on 105 acres of what used to be John Bell's estate, the piece of the estate with the Bell Witch Cave on it. The guys live in the area. They knew the story of the Bell Witch. They were locals. Now, the Eden family was running tours to the cave back then, charging $2 a visit. It's $12 nowadays. The Bell Witch is famous to this day, and according to W.M. Eden Sr., the cave was helping the family get through some tough times with the farm. There's a case for keeping the cave tour interesting, right? But listen to everything that happened. They took the customary tour of the cave in the early evening, and then, with the Eden family's permission, stayed behind with sleeping bags. Bill, the photographer, was an experienced spelunker. In fact, he was a member of the National Speleological Society, and prior to 1986, he had explored miles of caves throughout Tennessee and Alabama. He was apparently nonplussed up to this point, stating, It's a grunge hole. Their plan was to sleep near an empty grave where a Native American child had been buried in antiquity, the body long since gone. Bill was more concerned with the preponderance of brown recluse spiders in the cave than anything else. Their bite is poisonous and can be fatal, albeit mostly only to children under the age of seven or people with weakened immune systems. Still, you don't want to lay down in a cave at night with so many of them that you can't even count them because if more than one bites an adult, well, you get the picture. David and Bill were discussing the recluse situation when they heard the first sound to immediately put them on edge. Listen to this excerpt from the article in the Tennessean. Did you hear that? I said. I have never heard a noise like that in a cave before, said Bill. There was a third growl like before, but this time louder than our own voices and increasing in intensity. It seemed to come from just around the corner. Let's go, Bill said. We went. We walked to the gate about 20 yards from the first room, stopped and looked back into the Bellwitch Cave. Now David and Bill were fairly freaked out at this point but they were there to get a story and hesitant to leave after only a short while. You see, the cave has two rooms and they had always been in the front one. The sounds seemed to come from deep within the second room. They decided they must have imagined what had happened and that they'd give it one more shot, sitting down again in the first room. A quarter hour passed and they heard only dripping water. Then it was there. Bill thought it was a jet. And sure enough, as they got closer to the mouth of the cave, the sound became clearer. Whew, they thought. They must have felt their minds had been playing tricks on them. But then, that was enough. They left. Of course, David and Bill spoke to William Eden about it. I mean, after all, it's a tourist attraction, isn't it? It would make sense to scare us out of our minds. They examined it thoroughly, looking for jugglery. They did find some wires, but when they followed them, they only went to lights. Eden told them, Why would I need speakers? The cave makes its own noises, and added, I believe in Kate, said Eden. I call her a spirit, and she's never hurt me. I've had to fight to keep the covers on my bed, and I've heard footsteps that lead right up to my bedroom door. You get used to it. Eden is a believer, and for those who believe, there are many theories of what the nationally known Bell Witch is ranging from the ghost of an Indian whose grave was disturbed to an energy mass from another dimension. Eden also believed at the time that Kate roamed freely around Adams, spending her nights in the cave. David Gerald and Bill Wilson returned to the Tennessean as a bit of a laughingstock. Run off my noises? You could have had a Pulitzer Prize-winning interview with a ghost. 
A year later, William's 37-year-old son was quoted in an article as saying, May God strike me dead if I'm lying, but we did not do a thing to cause that. Whatever the Bell Witch was back then, and has ceased to be, or continues to be in the ethers, somewhere beyond the veil of our reality, whether it was a terrifying case of demonic meddling or simply Southern family folklore, she, or it, had become very real in one sense, and that the Bell Witch legend lives on to this day. And if you choose not to believe in her, or you disrespect her, or you insult her memory, she might just slap some belief into you. Never forget, she knows exactly where you live. That's going to wrap up our series on the Bell Witch. We'll be back next week with our two-part Halloween special on, well, let's just say the Bell Witch was just a warm-up. Special thanks again to The Ark and my son for playing a little boy stuck in the cave. Please remember to support our sponsors, and if you'd like to attend our meetup in Los Angeles on December 2nd, RSVP at our Facebook group or via email to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Special thanks to John Boland. Hi, I'm Scarlett. Hi, I'm Scott Philbrook. I'm Derek Smith. I'm Forrest Burgess, and I give permission to a T as in Tom to use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy wide in C as in cat, C as in cat, C as in cat, C as in cat. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. (laughs) 